power on. Accessing historical database. Year 2020. The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants try to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Woo! The best the world has ever seen, baby. It is the Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star, ready to get into some sovereign tech this week. The latest tech news, the latest who knows what hell kind of news we're going to get into in this episode, but there's a lot of it. But I got to tell you, we're going to open this one up with uh, something that old Dr. Brian Sovereign uh, had a, I don't know, suggested is the right word. Certainly, well, I, I don't know if predicted is the right word either, but basically... What has happened is just moments before I hit record on this show, Sovereign Tech, the podcast, was invited. And actually, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know how I got the invitation. Okay. And, and maybe, maybe everybody got it. Maybe if you host, you know, which most people do, host their podcast on some kind of, you know, podcast hosting service, right? Like I use Podbean which has been around for, you know, over a decade. I mean, just rock solid and, you know, feature rich. But, uh, I mean, then this is tech news. This is important. We're going to talk about it. I'm not just going to talk about, you know, not going to be meta here talking about podcasting on a podcast, but I'm not sure exactly what the metrics were as to why Amazon reached out to certain podcasts. Because, I mean, again, like I don't, do I have an Amazon account? Sure. Of course I do. Okay. I mean, do I like it? Not exactly, but regardless, <laughs> uh, I do have an Amazon account. Um, but they specifically reached out to me saying we are, here's what's going on. We are going to add as an Amazon, we are going to add to audible and Amazon music. We are going to add podcasts to these platforms. Now they reached out to me by name. I mean, inviting me I mean, and, and I guess, and I've talked to a couple people already about it. Um, there are some podcasts I know who did not get reached out to. Uh, so I don't know if it has to do with metrics. I mean, we hover around 20,000 listeners per week, you know, per episode, you know, 20,000 uniques. I don't know what their metric was as far as to who they reached out to. Maybe they reached out to podcasts with significantly less. I, I, I don't know again, what their criteria 
um, exactly was. But I do know that this is something they also did when reaching, when they were bolstering what Twitch after Amazon purchased Twitch, what Twitch was offering, putting on offer, trying to be more like YouTube that they reached out to higher, uh, let's see more followed. How about that? Or more subscribed to YouTube, uh, content creators asking them, Hey, we'd love to have you on Twitch, you know, and blah, blah, blah. Now I know with the Twitch deal at some points, I think they asked for some kind of exclusive content or at least a, a time release exclusivity, uh, onto, onto Twitch as compared to what, uh, you know, the, the, the YouTuber would normally put on YouTube. Right. Um, so I don't know if it's similar to that deal, but here's the thing is that years ago, years ago, in fact, there was a little while we talked about this. I want to say this is maybe 2015, 2016, something like that. When audible did start putting on content into the audible app. And of course, audible is owned by Amazon or has been for a while. It was an acquisition. Okay. Much like Twitch was as well. Granted, that was a long time ago, but anyway, there now. So, okay, actually speaking of a long time ago, so I've had an Audible account actually since before Amazon even owned it. Audible has had podcasts in the past. In fact, you paid for them and they were exclusives to Audible. And I mean, I'm saying they had this like almost 10 years ago, like they had in bed with Susie Bright uh, and and they had uh, some others. Now, fast forward a bit to like 2015, 2016 and audible started creating basically audible only pot. I mean, what were effectively podcasts. Okay. And they were making that available, but they were podcasts. It wasn't something that you could, you know, use the Podcatcher app, um, or even Apple podcasts or, or pocket casts or whatever. You couldn't use any of those to add in that content. Like they didn't have a, an RSS feed of any kind. They were specifically made, you know, by Audible Studios and so on. So it wasn't really them getting into podcasts. But when they did that, a light went off for me. And again, we're talking almost five years ago. A light went off for me. And I said at that point, and granted, yes, you are talking to the guy who coined the hashtag, hashtag Amazon World Domination Tour. And I did that eight years ago before. And I know I say this a lot, but look. I want you to know just how ahead of the game Sovereign Tech has always been. Long before any other tech show, and you name the tech show, was talking about the fact that Amazon was going to be the tech giant. Really, there aren't any other tech giants. It's only Amazon. And I'm not saying that glowingly. I'm not saying that like, is oh, isn't that great? No, no, quite the opposite. But I said that, look, they're coming and they're coming fast. And nobody's ready for it. And then what happened? Bam. Everything that I predicted that Amazon was going to do, they basically did. And here's another case of that. Okay. And I was ahead of the game again, years previous. When they started doing that, I said, oh, here we go. Finally, this is the singular company that could take on Apple's perceived. And I say perceived because it really is. Apple's perceived dominance in podcasting. This is because something we've talked about a lot on Sovereign Tech itself and a lot of other people have written about is that one of the reasons podcasts, podcasts haven't like taken over the entertainment world overall, and there's really no reason that they shouldn't. Um, it's, it's ironic, frankly, because when you think about it, 
uh, in the early 20th century into like the 1920s and so on. Of course, what was the hot medium, right? It was radio. We've just gone back in time. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's a bit of a different radio with more on demand, but uh, similar in many ways. You know, they're both, they were decentralized platforms, they're both decentralized platforms and so on. But regardless, um, you have to understand that podcasts, Basically, I mean, they get their name from the Apple iPod, right? And that they're originally like the way to find them was through the iTunes store back when that was more of a dominant force. Okay. Like that's, that's where all that starts. The thing is, is that because podcasting is so inherently decentralized, no one's really come, been able to make it a profitable thing and mass um, and no one's really been able to like rein it in. And I'm not saying that they should be able to rein it in. I like decentralized technologies. Okay. But no one's really been able to rein it in and create like a more centralized platform for podcasting. Certainly plenty of people have tried. Spotify is trying as hard as they can right now. We talked about that with, you know, with Joe Rogan. Um, there are, there are plenty, you know, and Apple is certainly has been making greater strides over the past couple of years to do so to the point that, you know, now, of course, the Apple podcast app is basically a completely separate app on regardless of what, you know, Apple platform you're using it on, you know, whether it's Mac OS or iOS or, or whatever. Now, the other problem with podcasts is collecting metrics, right? As in how many uniques do you have? I mean, and I got to tell you, it is a weird science to put together the, you know, those numbers. And I mean, even the biggest podcasts out there have had troubles with that for years. Uh, for example, twit, uh, you know, like they were, which hosts, I mean, that's an overall network, but you know, they host my favorite podcast, which happens to be security now with Steve Gibson. Um, and on there, like a few years ago, they, they came out like Leo Laporte came out and said, actually, you know, turns out we were tracking podcast numbers, we were missing out on a lot and we actually have double, like, I, I think they said security now had, I don't know, a hundred thousand listeners or somewhere around there per, you know, per episode. And they found out actually, no, it should be like over 200,000, something like that. Either way that there was like half of their audience that was just completely fucking missing. And so that creates another issue within podcasting where, you know, advertisers, basically the only thing they, th the only thing they think it can run off of is, well, what does iTunes say? Otherwise we can't really tell. And we don't care. The problem there is, is that you are ignoring a very sizable amount of the pot of the population as well as a passionate sector, shall we say of the population around the world who refuse. In fact, we might get into this a little later who refuse to use Apple's products who refuse to be a part of Apple's metrics. I mean, even ask a lot of iOS users, and I can tell you too, I mean, I, I have a, actually, I have the, the latest iPod touch here, which I reviewed recently. Um, I've used the Apple podcast app just to see, you know, make sure everything looks nice and whatever, and what that's all about. I mean, it's a shitty fucking app. It's horrible. Mo and, and I've known this for years. I mean, I've talked to plenty of iOS users who are all, yeah, I use pocket cast or yeah, you, you know, they use something else. They, 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 they don't even want to touch at what Apple puts on offer as far as podcasting goes. So you know, re relying upon iTunes reviews, which everybody asks for and all this other crap. I mean, it, it's just, it's, they're meaningless metrics ultimately, but the industry and any of the money around the industry looks really hard 
at those numbers when, you know, they, they don't mean much. <laughs> Just like the new and noteworthy section doesn't mean anything. It just means you released a, pot, a new podcast. <laughs> like it's not, it doesn't do anything for you. It, it doesn't mean you're somehow like really noteworthy. That's, that's, that's crap. So that's why I say Apple's dominance in podcasting is perceived. It's not real. Okay. Um, and, and in fact, it's not only not real, it's hilarious how many, <laughs> Was uh, there? There used to be that 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 podcast from uh, from Torrent Freak, right? That would steal this show or something. Like they would ask for for iTunes ratings on that show. It's like, wait a minute, Torrent Freak, Torrents? Yeah, I mean, you can't even get a Torrent app on iOS, and not not stock anyway. What are you doing? Like promoting the use of iTunes? You know, I mean, that didn't even make sense. So I say all this. Anyway, so the, the light that went off at the time, five, six, you know, five years ago or so, was that, aha, so at the time, and Apple also hadn't doubled down on podcasting like they have over the past couple of years at that point. I said, yeah, I don't want there necessarily to be a centralized service for podcasting, but there isn't one, and podcasting isn't itself going to become a dominant medium of entertainment and infotainment or whatever other terms you want to go with until somebody does become that platform. That's just that huge. And I had said on the show at that time, and I mean, this might've been episode 170, somewhere in there. I had said at that time, I said, Audible could do this. Like, in fact, they're, they're about the only ones that could really pull this off because most people have, especially if you're listening to podcasts already, but uh, even people that don't listen to podcasts, a lot of people have um, have the Audible app. In fact, you know, we know that the number of audiobooks sold compared to, I think, at least ebooks sold, if not books overall, uh, audiobooks are easily outpacing their print, shall we say, or e-print brethren. So auto audiobooks are obviously a really fucking hot thing. And of course, Audible is absolutely at the center of that. And it just only makes sense for Audible to allow for podcasts to be in their app. Now, I mean, them being in the Amazon Music app, that's actually going to speak to some other stuff we have to talk about where we're in, during the foreplay here, where we have all the little news to get into. But this is this is a very big deal. All right, what what Amazon's doing here? Uh, they in the email. I went through the whole process. I set up Sovereign Tech to come out on launch day, and it's coming out on launch day. Uh, f- but we don't know what the launch day is, according to the email. Is what I was going to get to. We're not sure when they're going to implement this, and in fact, there's debate whether or not it will be in all platforms. Right, right now they're thinking Amazon Music, and of course, where it really makes sense uh, in the Audible app. Okay, but now regardless of all of that, I mean, this is. This is the company that could actually finally unseat Apple from being the perceived dominant. And again, it's perceived advertisers are basically lied to. You understand over at over iTunes metrics. I mean, they're just straight up lied to and and they're missing out. There are podcasts that are massive that if you looked at their iTunes metrics, you'd have no idea. There are podcasts that have passionate followings that would bring ROI to an advertising budget almost overnight, but the advertisers don't know. Right. I mean, it's just that they, they have, they have no idea. I mean, and certainly there are like third party companies that are, or other companies, independent companies that are trying to put together, um, 
you know, a platform for advertisers to find podcasts that fit their niche or that, you know, fit their bill, whatever. Um, but basically iTunes is not the way to go on this. Now is audible going to be the way to go on this? Not directly. I don't think audible is going to help as far as advertising goes, but here's where I think that this is a very big deal. Like I said, is that, so first off, I mean, you know, I predicted this, this is going to happen. Yeah, sure. Let's say that. Cause I mean, basically I did that, that eventually audible is going to start including podcasts and there's an, look just fast. There's an advantage to that in the fact that, you know, that's one less app that you have to install. Right. And of course we talk about app minimalism on this show all the time. It's one of the central tenets of sovereign tech, the less apps you have installed, um, you know, the less attack vectors you have on your devices. Okay. Uh, and let's not forget, I mean, that the audible app is also a thing on desktop or at least on, you know, certainly on windows 10 and some others. And, uh, and of course, you know, that you could even get into Chromebooks where that would be a thing. And even Mac OS's inclusion of iOS apps to where now you have a great podcast app on your, on many desktops as well, even though I'm well aware you could already do that with pocket Cast and everything else. But again, you're getting so much with audible now that's on offer. And I don't imagine it's going to be part of the premium subscription or anything like that. I, I, I can't, I can't really picture that unless like they're going to do some kind of ads, baking some kind of ads into it. And then to get an ad free experience, perhaps if you're paying for like a gold membership or platinum membership with, with audible, you could get rid of those. But I, I that gets into that. That's a whole other conversation. But it's an abstract, and I and I know it wouldn't take off if they added in ads that other podcast apps wouldn't uh, play. In fact, when I went through the process, Amazon was very clear that if you have dynamic ads set up in a podcast that get injected, say, by another platform that you use, those will also appear in, in Audible. So it would seem that they themselves are not going to put in dynamic ads. Uh, but anyway, what can happen here? Here's the thing. So competition. I am not going to say to you that I think competition is the end all be all of forward progression for uh, human civilization. There are a lot of people on this planet who think that way. A, they're wrong. B, I'm not saying it can't push things forward, but in general, it's not the most effective, efficient, and long lasting uh, way to go about it. Okay. That's another conversation for another time in the world that we exist in the infrastructure, the, the structure that we live within, within civilization today, certainly within the, as, as so many call it, even though the word means nothing in the, in Western civilization, uh, competition is very much order of the day. And if, if anything, it's reinforced and taught and so much more by social mores to say nothing of the economic fictions that we live under. So, that said, the, and I don't want to be middle of the road on this because, you know, that's usually where you get hit by a car and you get run over. But middle of the road on this is that finally there is a, you know, with Audible, they could take on Apple and unseat Apple, like I said, as the perceived dominant player. Now, I already said that, but let's talk about what this, what this means. That means that Apple as soon as audible makes inroads and I think it will the Amazon music app. No, no, we'll, we'll talk about that maybe in a, in a second here, but as soon as audible makes inroads on, 
you know, and, and Apple notices like listen drops and everything else, Apple's going to step up its game. And then you have Spotify in here too, who they're going to, they're, they're probably freaking out right now. Like, Oh shit. Audible's going to be doing, uh, you know, of course they just made that huge deal with Joe Rogan and so on. We talked about that in recent episodes, but Oh shit. Audible's going to, you know, we're, we got to take on Amazon. Now they're getting into the podcast space and that's going to make any company sweat. There's not a, there's not a company on the planet except for maybe Alibaba or something, you know, that, that, or that wouldn't be sweating balls over the fact that Amazon is moving into a certain, uh, 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 demo or moving into a new sector, that being podcasts in the broad sense. So all these companies are going to have to step up their game if they don't want audible to become the major player. And this is where, again, I'm not saying competition is, you know, is inherently good or the inherent form of progression and so on. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that if there is any good to come out of this, this thing that we have very little control over, if if any good is to come out of this, this may become a very good thing for the podcaster in general. Because I think that there are podcasts and podcasters out there and networks out there that should be doing insane money because they bring more to the world than any television show or movie could even dream of to say nothing of the fact that particularly in the, the, shall we say the COVID climate that we're in, I mean, podcasts are a pretty safe medium, right? (laughs) You know, you don't have to go to movie theaters or whatever you don't. I mean, and they're a very personal medium and they just kind of fit in with uh, social distancing, shall we say, right? I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying that that's how it is. So my hope is that with Amazon getting into the space that everybody else wants to up their game and that ultimately that leads to podcasts, podcasters, etc., making really good money off of really great work that they do. It's what's deserved to them. You know, I mean, because the movies that come out today are largely trash. Uh, the television shows, you know, I mean, if, if they were toilet paper, I wish they were because, you know, there's so many channels and everything. There'd be plenty of toilet paper to go around. And we could all wipe our asses all day long with the amounts of shit shows that are out there. Uh, so, you know, like, I mean, yes, the world is ready for this new type of entertainment. And I really, really think that that Amazon, they, they have the moxie and the prowess and the reach to make this something. And, and again, to make, and ultimately, I mean, even if it doesn't add up to podcasters making more money, ultimately it brings uh, eyes to the medium or maybe ears to the medium and increases, shall we say, even though I'm careful with this word, shall we say legitimacy uh, for podcasting. And that is only a good thing. Okay. Now you're saying, again, I didn't want to get into a huge conversation around podcasts here on on the onset because you're already listening to a podcast. I don't have to convince you, but this has broad ramifications for a major sector within the tech world. Now, I mean, ultimately, do I want Amazon and podcasts? No, Uh, (laughs) they're big enough, (laughs) right? I don't need them in in any more market sectors, right? I I mean, I'm just, I'm not, or entertainment or, or whatever else. No, you know, but is there, is there a a scenario here where the everyday podcaster uh, could end up winning? Sure. I mean, and me, you know, with Sovereign Tech, I mean, I have advertisers, right? I've had advertisers for years. I've been making money uh, 
off of this show or with this show for a long, long time. Um, and you know, back when, when I used to care about Patreon, I mean, I did, oh, I did fairly well. Actually I was in like the top, uh, or I was, I guess the top 6% because I, I did better than 94% of other, other, um, uh, Patreon content creators. Um, I mean, I did fairly well with Patreon. Of course, you know, we had to leave that behind, um, because Patreon was, well, their squeeze, uh, was frankly ridiculous, uh, where, where they were, where they were going. Um, Podbean offers, you know, subscriptions and all this. I mean, and, you know, and I have people that subscribe, even though now I put out no exclusive content behind a paywall. And in fact, I mean, I'm glad now that decision seems almost brilliant in hindsight and I don't, I'm not patting myself on the back here. I'm just saying that what, you know, if there is the chance to, what do you have with audible? Like 50, I don't know. What do they say? 55 million active subscribers on audible. Uh, that's people who have a gold and platinum membership. Why would I want to, you know, block content from 55 million subscribers who are going to only really use it because it's also available in audible. I mean, and this doesn't even get into, I mean, the potential here, right. Is that it, and it depends on how they implement this, how, how Amazon's going to implement this. But if, if the search bar in audible is going to give you options of finding subjects in podcasts, uh, much like how Google podcasts, which was never really competition for, for Apple at all. Um, you know, for, for Google podcasts, uh, if you notice, if you ever use that app sometimes, and I'm not exactly sure how this algorithm works, but it will identify what I talk about during a show. Like anytime I'll mention Harlan Ellison, it'll at the bottom of the app, it'll say Harlan Ellison. Like it'll say a subjects discussed and it'll bring up like Twitter or Harlan Ellison or whatever. Okay. Uh, if Amazon's going to do that, I mean, then, you know, that turns into some very interesting moments where, you know, people could be looking up surveillance society or things like this. And then sovereign tech, bam, you know, shows up right, right up top because no one talks about that more than me, <laughs> you know, or, or privacy concerns or anything like that. All these different search metrics that you would put into audible would, you know, would make a podcast show up. Um, and that's, you know, again, do I want Amazon in this ultimately, like in, in a perfect world scenario? No, not in a perfect world scenario, but in the scenario that we're in, uh, that makes things very, very interesting as far as that goes. Now, the Amazon music implementation, and this actually is going to lead into, um, another, this is going to lead into another story that we have here for the foreplay. Actually quick, another benefit here is that with, and fuck these devices, but with Alexa devices, now you could probably just say to an Alexa, play Sovereign Tech and bammo, you know, my show will just start, which I've actually, I made the, in the past when I reviewed, um, varying forms of Alexa, but like certainly it's original implementation. I said, the only thing that was attractive to me about an Alexa device, you know, about the Amazon echo, right? I don't care if I say her name. I have no qualms about that. Uh, <laughs> but the only, um, you know, the only thing that I, I thought was like really cool and kind of viable was its integration with audible. It's like, yeah, that'd be kind of nice to just have a speaker sitting around where you could say, Hey, audible, please continue playing my book, whatever. Right. Um, and I know you can do certain things like that with other, uh, smart home devices, other IOT devices, but obviously none of them have the, the, the reach 
and the subscriber base uh, that Audible has as well as, I mean, and, and actually Ellen brought up a great point. She was even saying like, really this, this only made sense because a lot of the Audible originals that are getting released uh, lately, especially the ones that if you have a subscription, the ones that come out, they give you like 12 of them for free every month, you know, and they range from an hour to six hours. But she basically said, you know, a lot of those feel like podcasts. And I was like, wow, you, yeah, you're totally right about that. Of course, her usual brilliance. But uh, I mean, it, it's clear that they they just want to be the dominant player in audio. Now, that being a part of Amazon Music, let's talk about that. I don't know what the install base for Amazon music is, but I can't imagine it's, it's high. I, I just can't picture that it's very high because Spotify is such an, you know, such a dominant, you know, such an animal, uh, in that space. Um, I mean, in fact, so this is the other story I wanted to get into and that has to do with Google play music, but I'll talk about that in a second. Um, now I actually, I tested out Amazon music for a while and my review was pretty favorable. Granted, we're not talking about privacy here. I mean, we are talking like threat level one. Like, like we're not, <laughs> don't expect any of your data to be private with Amazon, right? Okay. But from a purely consumer usability standpoint, I thought Amazon music was actually fantastic. The way that it implemented Alexa, where I could say, you know, play, I don't know, uh, play revenge by kiss. And it would play the entire album. Or I could say a specific song, uh, play, take it off or play Domino by Kiss, and it would just start playing. I mean, the music selection, I've certainly seen better on other apps, perhaps, but most of these apps are around the same, where they all have around 40 million songs available, right? Uh, but I was very impressed with the functionality of that app. I mean, I, I had almost glowing words about it, okay? So now Google Play Music, which we're about to talk about here, they also, uh, a few years ago, implemented podcasts. Obviously, everybody's trying to take on Apple, right? And have everything inside, you know, all siloed within. And, and I know that concern too, because I think the easy argument to be made here is that, well, what's really going to happen with Amazon getting into podcasting is that they're going to start siloing content just like, uh, you know, just like Spotify is doing where Spotify is, is making, is making exclusive deals with podcasters like Joe Rogan and so on, where they are siloing the content and it's only available on their app or, you know, where Apple might do that or something along those lines. I think eventually the siloing thing is going to bite them in the ass because of the, because of the fact that siloing works for Netflix, Hulu, and others. Granted, you can just torrent all their shit and I recommend it, <laughs> but siloing only works when the company is specifically producing the content podcasting would ultimately fall apart. Uh, if, I mean, you can have Joe Rogan deals, you can have your deals, you know, like Sirius XM did with Howard Stern and whoever else and whatever siloing really only works when you are, when the, you know, when the budget is in house for whatever is getting produced, but that's not the case with podcasts. You know, everybody's making, I mean, yes, it takes some amount of money for me to produce a show every week and to get it out there and, you know, maintenance costs and everything else. Um, you know, and, and, and there's other costs that come along with that, that, you know, that I deal with. Uh, but that's the thing is that you can't really silo something that you don't really hold the purse strings on. Now, if, if they start, you know, if, if audible somehow becomes a, an advertising platform or a revenue platform of some kind, then maybe that argument could kind of happen. But I don't know that podcasting will ever really go that way. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if there is some kind of backlash against what Joe Rogan is doing 
with, uh, with Spotify. So I don't know about the, the siloing argument. I get it, but I don't think that that's the trajectory that these things are going to go. Anyway, Amazon music, including the podcasts, really, I think ultimately that's going to lead to where Amazon music eventually becomes an option and folds into an audible account. Follow me through on this. All right. Well, I agree that, you know, audible is generally a more intellectual platform and modern music, which is largely what's available. I mean, I know they have, you know, huge catalogs, but I mean, if you look at like Spotify's numbers, what gets played in a week and everything, a lot of it is, is modern horseshit, right? And certainly, I mean, in most modern music or at least pop music, top 40 radio or whatever has lost any rel- any, any, uh, uh, essence of intellectual, uh, <laughs> content. Uh, I mean, frankly, they lost it decades ago, you know, uh, but so it wouldn't exactly make sense. I think to have Amazon music, like it, it would seem incompatible, like the audience for audible and Amazon music would not be the same, but I don't know. Like if you made it an optional tab that you could turn on and off and you rolled it into that $15 a month, um, audible subscription, I think there's a value prop there of some kind. And, you know, Audible's value props for subscribers have gone up significantly uh, in just the past two years. So I wonder about that. Um, But I think that's the road that they're going to go because it's not uninteresting that. So Google Play, just this last week, it was announced that they are shutting down Um, and you will basically lose access, I think, to your music end of August. In fact, amazingly, I still had some of my library uh, available on Google Play Music because that's what I used to use because it was like the first streaming platform that lets you upload your own songs. Now I just use Plex, you know, and I have a home server and all that stuff. And, you know, that that's the route that I go. Um, but I mean, and, and I had over the years and, and I mean, we're talking almost a decade. I had bought a lot of music on Google Play Music and so on. But you can transfer, I guess, basically everything's going to YouTube Music. And you can transfer everything over there. I don't know if podcasts are going there. I hadn't seen a clear sign on that, but Google is trying to put everything under one platform and probably not going to podcast there because of course, Google has its own separate Google podcast app where they do add in interesting features. Some of which I mentioned earlier, but are largely designed to make it work with either the search Google search engine, uh, you know, on a web page or, uh, through the web portal, right through, through your web browser or to work well with Google home. Uh, you know, that's why they have a separate podcast platform. So I don't think that's going to get ended up, you know, mixed in with YouTube music. Uh, I had to go through a process with that as well with, uh, with sovereign tech to make sure that its metrics are getting switched over to Google podcasts and whatever. Um, and they do have separate metrics as to where audible says they're not going to have separate metrics, but anyway, that, that, that's, that's just for now. I'm sure. Um, I looked into this transition of Google play music shutting down. Now, I mean, I did a review of Google Play Music uh, and why I left it uh, some years ago. And a lot of it had to do with is that the music I was uploading to it, it would replace it with the completely, not just the wrong song by the same band, but it'd be the wrong song by a totally different band and a totally different genre, well out of play. I mean, like it just didn't fucking make sense what they were doing. And then it would delete because if I'd go to re-download the album, it would delete the original version that I had. And I mean, it was an absolute mess that took me a very long time to get fixed because I, I have a massive music library. Okay. Um, 
But Google Play Music has been a mess for a long time, even though its initial feature proposition was the best of the bunch. It definitely beat out uh, Spotify. It beat out, we'll go down the list of it. It beat out anything Apple certainly had at the time. I mean, it was, it was in many ways the best thing going. Uh, YouTube music, on the other hand, um, I that was something that I also reviewed. Actually, I think I reviewed that in 2020 or I reviewed it in 2019. I know there have been there have been some feature updates, but basically, I mean, I I tore that thing to shreds like that is the worst fucking UI I have. I've seen just about any, on any app for anything, not just music. It's a terrible user interface, fucking horrible. So I feel bad for anybody that's reliant upon Google Play Music and that they want to switch over. In fact, I saw some reviews. People were reviewing Google Play Music saying like, wow, you know, this is ending. Uh, what does Google Play Music even look like now? And there were reviews. I mean, even I think like on Android Police and other places, uh, and, you know, those are high-end sites for anything Android and or high audience sites, I should say. And they said, wow, this is such a great user interface. Like, why did we ever leave this? And <laughs> oh, It's such a mess. Part of that, though, and actually this might also speak to what's going on with audible. Part of that is to basically get you used to, I mean, I almost feel like a lot of these companies are making the user interfaces so clunky that you don't want to use the user interface and you just want to talk to the app. Okay. Like audible actually recently really revamped their user interface. And I bet it was to allow for podcasts you know, to, to get implemented or really a lot of different media, uh, uh, entertainment mediums or information mediums to, to get added in and for, for that to make more sense and for it to not just be about audiobooks. Uh, so I can understand that now, but I'm telling you, there's a part of me that really feels like the, the whole deal here is to make just the worst user interface possible to basically force you to start using voice commands. Um, but anyway, so Google Play Music is shutting down. Is it a surprise? No. I mean, you know, this is just another in a long line of very high profile uh, Google services to get completely shut down. Um, it's annoying as fuck because I still have to get some music off of there. Uh, but this also points at this is what happens when you don't have actual control of your music. When you don't have the data locally yourself, it can potentially get taken away from you. And speaking of that. I want to talk about uh, this. This might get into more of the conspiratorial realm, but I want to talk about an app. And no, I'm not going to talk about TikTok, uh, but I'll probably get into that in the next episode. There is a major conversation to get in around that, including Microsoft's acquisition of its U.S. business uh, or U.S. operations, I should say, which might actually point at, I want to bring this up, that probably points at why they shut down Mixer because they're going to want to put everything under the TikTok banner, right? To take on YouTube, Twitch, and, and so on. Uh, but anyway, we'll save that larger conversation for later because it also affects WeChat and everything else. And, and anyway, there's just a lot of, frankly, a lot of horse shit going on around it um, because Trump's an idiot. But you don't need to hear that from me, right? <laughs> you already know that. <laughs> so anyway, um, the app I want to talk about is an app that I actually use very often. Uh, and that app is none other than the Planet Fitness app. I know you were not expecting that one. Of course, longtime listeners know that I take my uh, fitness very seriously. 
Uh, I, I work out, you know, five days a week, uh, at least, um, that's not even getting into any nice, uh, you know, swimming, kayaking or hiking or anything like that, that the, the incomparable Ellen Sovereign and I do, but, um, you know, we work out together all the time. Uh, and generally, I mean, boy, going to the gym these days has been a very interesting experience. I don't want to have that conversation here because that'd be a fun one to have with Ellen on again, but I do want to talk about something I noticed when we were going there the other day and I used the planet fitness app. Now I don't use it for like the home workouts. I mean, I'm already, I've been working out for many, many years. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to call myself a bodybuilder, but certainly I have goals reminiscent of a, of a bodybuilder. I like being, you know, the mass monster, all this shit and just being in general, you know, very fit. Um, I think that that's, you know, to some degree, and, and there's plenty of evidence to suggest uh, this, that, you know, your physical fitness and mental fitness are inextricably linked regardless. Okay. If you're wondering, you know, why is a tech guy big about that? Well, there's part of it. Um, at Planet Fitness. So, I mean, you got to understand on a nice planet zero here, uh, <laughs> New Hampshire, there aren't a whole ton of like, you know, like your, your, uh, what do they call them? Boutique gyms and so on. I mean, Planet Fitness is kind of the best you've got. I mean, there's some other ones, but it's kind of the best you've got. And it is advantageous, you know, to have a Planet Fitness subscription and that you can use it basically anywhere that there's a Planet Fitness and just in you go. And yeah, the equipment, some of it's kind of basic and there's, you know, things that they're missing. You know, you're not going to do any T-bar rows or whatever for your back while you're in there. But overall, it does the job. I mean, it's just, you know, it, it's it's a it's a good place to land, Especially if you have, I mean, granted, you know, this year throughout 2020, I haven't been traveling. Well, no, that's not true. Earlier in 2020, I was traveling a lot, but obviously as soon as COVID hit that, you know, that wasn't happening. Um, but it's great when you're traveling. I mean, that you could just, there's just, they're fucking everywhere, you know, and you, and you can hop in the gym and, and, and away you go. So normally, and again, I've been a member for many years. Normally when you go into Planet Fitness, you, and this is just until uh, after, you know, there was, there was some, um, uh, loosening of the restrictions, uh, on COVID-19 quarantines and everything else within the United States, uh, beforehand you had, you know, just a little card that you would have on your, you know, on your keys that you could just scan. It had a barcode on it and you scan it. Right. And that that's, you do that and in you go, you go and you do your workout. Okay. Now, they, those are supposed to be, and I'm sure it defers on what gym you go, what planet fitness you go into. Now they want you to use the app. You're not supposed to be able to just use that card, even though with the app, really you're just using a barcode. And to me, it just didn't seem to make any sense. It's like, wait, why, like, like why have, why require people to just use the barcode in the app and not the one that's on your little card or whatever? I was like, that, that, that just doesn't make any damn sense. Then it made sense, uh, just a few days ago when we were going to the gym on a, on a Friday night, because you know, that's what cool people do. They go to the gym on Friday night. They don't party. Not like, uh, not like you think. So anyway, and I'm, I'm dead serious about that by the way, but, uh, let's continue. Um, when I went to open the app so that the barcode could get scanned, it brought up a little contract as it were little, little, uh, a terms of service, you know, a little agreement 
that you couldn't get out of. And there was only one option to choose. You can either, or there was two, you could either hit X and back out of it. And again, this is when on the top, right, you would click on the app or you would click on the, the icon for the, uh, for the barcode and that brings it up. Okay. And, and once that did that agreement would come up on the screen and you could either hit X to back out of it, but then you wouldn't get the barcode or you could hit, yes, I agree, which was the only way to get to the barcode. Okay. And this agreement was you, you verify basically, basically, I mean, I'm not going to give you the exact words, but it basically said you verify that you uh, do not have COVID-19 have not been in contact with anyone that has COVID-19 in however many days, blah, 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 blah. Yes, you agree. And once you agree that, you know, and granted, what is there to enforce this? Nothing, you know, a person could just could have COVID-19 and say, yep, sure. I agree. You know, and Antonio Banderas who has COVID-19 could say, ah, yeah, I'm fine. You know, and click, yes, I agree. And nobody, nobody is there to enforce it. Now, let me be clear also. Um, and I haven't exactly tested this out too much though. I suppose I should, uh, it's just as easy I mean, the app has had this functionality for a long time, meaning that where it has your, you know, your, the barcode for you to scan, to get in. Um, it's just as easy to, you know, you could take a screenshot on your phone, right. And have it saved in your, in your, you know, photo gallery on your phone. And then you could just bring up, you know, the, the barcode right from the app itself and just have that get scanned. Now, the thing is, is that every time and I, I don't know exactly how this would work, but if they are, if Planet Fitness is getting more app centric, shall we say, every time that you, um, you, you know, that, that, that there's like a new agreement that you have to agree to, they could change that barcode to where, you know, the one that you took a screenshot of doesn't work anymore. Right. Um, I mean, <laughs> anyway, there's a lot of things that could be done with, with Planet Fitness, you know, with its app requirements. Okay. But the problem here is it for me is that you just lost a lot of control. You know, now access is wholly reliant on you making legal agreements, right? Which you already do when you sign up generally, but you know, now it can, it can just be, it can change by the day, you know, what, and, and ultimately is this, why is, why is planet fitness doing this? Ultimately it's so that they are not uh, legally liable for, you know, people say claiming that they get infected by COVID-19 at the gym, they can say they can go to court, you know, you can sue them and they can go to court and say, Hey, yeah, but look, then whoever was in there lied because we don't let them in unless they claim at the very least that they don't have COVID-19. Now I get it. And I mean, from a business perspective, I see where, you know, where, where that makes sense again, to, to, to get out of legal issues. All right. But for you, I mean, where else is this going to get implemented? And again, ultimately you really lose a lot of control and now you just have more. I wish people would consider, I don't, cause I don't think most people do. You don't realize, and you know, how much is any of this enforced? Not by much. And that's why you don't realize it, but it can be enforced if, and when needed. And that's the problem. I don't think most people realize how many law, legal contracts, legal bindings, laws and whatever else that are really always hanging over their head, ready to just get crushed down. 
Now, I mean, there's that aspect to this, and I wish people would realize it. I wish they would think twice when they click, I agree, I agree, and whatever else. But the worst part is, is that you ultimately lose access to something that, you know, it's like, well, are you going to give me a discount because I'm healthy? Wouldn't that be nice, right? Is this going to work like an insurance company? Oh, we don't even need to go there. But Ultimately, you just lost a very simple, there, there's no reason why a barcode on your keychain, you know, on a, on a little card still shouldn't work well enough for you. There is no reason that that shouldn't, that, uh, you know, I mean, that, that should be fine, but it's not now, now you suddenly, you have to jump through so ever many hoops to get access to something that for years you had basically unfettered access to. Is this the new normal? You can claim that, but again, the reality here is, is that there is no teeth behind this anyway. So really it is all complete bullshit just to protect the corporation. That's what it's there for. And I, I don't know, I, I, I mean, I can imagine some fairly nefarious uses for this and certainly with other apps, not just like Planet Fitness or going to the gym, but I saw that and, I was, and the instant it came, I was like, oh, oh I, I don't like this. <laughs> and I mean, you're talking to a guy who's happy to wear a mask all the time, of course, for other reasons, but privacy reasons, but regardless, okay, and, and others. But, <laughs> but there's that part of me that, you know, can't help of like, think of Philip K. Dick in a moment like this where, oh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I'll need an app to get into my apartment right? That scans a variable barcode or something along those lines, uh, or uses NFC or whatever, you know? And there's a part of me that sees this nasty little future where from afar, I could lose access to anything all because it's run by an app that is centrally controlled at another server. And this was a minor case, but it is a real live case of where that sort of thing can happen. If you, you know, don't meet whatever criteria, I mean, yeah. Okay. You know, people are willing to buy into this stuff because of COVID-19 and I, and I get where those people are coming from. All right. Like I, I get their, their fears and concerns regardless of any reality around them. I get it. All right. But this is pointing at what should absolutely not be a new normal. And again, ultimately the, the real reason that this is even getting implemented, does it give Planet Fitness more control? Is Planet Fitness in the future going to get rid of employees and do like Anytime Fitness or whatever uh, those places are where you only access via key card and there's nobody actually working there or something? Yeah, maybe. I, I guess I could see that sort of thing happening at some point. Uh, but when you are in tumultuous times, you need more access. You need more ready access to services and necessities. And this is pointing at a direction of less access. And I didn't like it. What, what, what do I have to agree to next? I'm just waiting for that hammer to fall. We'll be right back with some more sovereign tech. Maybe we're going to have a little more of a, an app conversation or a smartphone conversation. How about that? Be right back with me. Hey, is Sovereign Tech not enough for you? Well, let me tell you about something you'll never get enough of. No, no, I mean it. We're talking about a radio show and podcast that goes 
all night long, seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 days a year, and has been going since the early aughts, baby. I am talking about none other than Free Talk Live. It's the show you control. That's right. It's an open phones call-in show that is ready for you. And if you're worried that your voice isn't going to get heard, don't be. We are talking about the only libertarian radio show stateside. And not only that, it's also the number 26 talk show in the United States. Start listening now and go ahead and hit that massive back catalog at freetalklive.com. The Golden Stallion guarantees a good time, and you might even find some episodes with me on them when you do. That's freetalklive.com, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get back to the show. The main story. It is time for our story of the week. And, you know, actually, a lot of this episode is ultimately about smartphones. Uh, I, I mean, it's really going to run run the gamut of this of this show. And I mean, I think the the audible, you know, audible, including podcasts now or eventually. Um, I mean, is there the chance that that's not going to happen? Uh, I think it's going to happen. I mean, like there was that there was a little while there and we talked about this where Amazon was making a messaging app and that, I mean, that was years ago and that never came to fruition, even though it did look interesting as far as being end to end encrypted and, and some other things. But, um, I really do think that's going to happen. Uh, and I think it's relevant to smartphones. Of course. In fact, actually where I'm really wondering if it's relevant is that, so you're, is it the fourth generation? I think it's the fourth generation Kindle paper, Kindle paper white and the ninth and 10th generation Kindle Oasis. Is that how I'd say that? Plural Oasis Oasis. Uh, it's been a while since I've been in an Oasis. I have, by the way, <laughs> and, and I have a Kindle Oasis. I've been in a real Oasis and I didn't have my Kindle Oasis with me at the time because I was in the military, but whatever. Anyway, um, the, the Kindle, the, the ninth and 10th generation Kindle Oasis. And again, the fourth generation, I think paper white, they all um, can play audiobooks from audible. You can download them. You know, they have like 32 gigs of storage on them, which can hold quite a few audio audiobooks, frankly, along with your, your normal eBooks, which take generally take up very little space. Um, and so I wonder if they're going to allow podcasts on uh, e-readers. I mean, without getting into the conversation around, you know, Hey, our Bluetooth headphones, you know, blood brain barrier and all this without getting into that, because you have to use Bluetooth headphones with that. You could use a Bluetooth speaker, though. That, that might be a little more palatable. And certainly there are alternative options for that. Like you can get a little Bluetooth receiver that you can get that you can plug plug in headphones, you know, your normal one eighth or uh, yeah. Yeah. One eighth jack headphones into, um, you know, to kind of resolve that blood brain barrier if you're, if you're concerned around that. But anyway, um, I wonder if it's going to come to e-readers that uh, that would be a big deal. <laughs> like I would be very intrigued. If I could play podcasts off of my Kindle Oasis, that that would be pretty wild. But anyway, we're done talking about that, but we do have to get into conversation around another app. Um, and that is none other than uh, actually an app where, uh, well, I spend most of my time. Uh, it's actually where I spend most of my time on the internet in a very real way. That is on Telegram. 
Um, Telegram, of course, uh, an app we've been talking about for many years on this show, run by Pavel Duroff, uh, who happens to be a triple black wearing anarchist, perhaps like someone else involved with this show. Uh, but <laughs> he put out, and this is on July 28th, there was a uh, the latest version of Telegram, which uh, actually did some pretty cool things, including upping the uh, file size limits of what you can send via Telegram from one gigabyte to 2.5 uh, gigabytes, which I thought was actually really, really cool, uh, considering that Firefox Send has been having some issues as late. Um, but so, and I, I guess it was like the eighth major update of the year. In fact, tell you what. So on Telegram, you have what's called Duroff's channel where he puts out little, and, and sometimes this stuff's really, really fascinating shit. What he puts out there, like his dietaries. I mean, and you know, he's a guy who's fairly well off, right? He, you know, uh, founded or was one of the co-founders of VK, which is like the Facebook of Russia. Uh, of course, now he's basically an enemy of the Russian state, more or less. Uh, so, you know, don't get confused here uh, as far as what all that means and, you know, why we're supportive of what Pavel Duroff is doing. But he, he put out a message on Duroff's channel, which I, if you have Telegram, I recommend following it. Um, that, well, let me read it for you on July 28th. I hope you all like the latest Telegram update, our eighth major update this year. This new version of Telegram could have become available for you several days earlier, but it didn't because of Apple's desire to control every mobile app in the world. Few iPhone users realize how the policies of Apple make their lives worse. That's why I decided to write the post below. Now he put a full post. Of course, Telegram also has this weird little service called Telegraph which is like a decentralized or somewhat decentralized uh, uh, blogging platform. And it's actually kind of pseudonymous too. It's, 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 it's nice. Like it, it's, it's a nice little feature. You just go to telegrat.ph. So it says telegraph. And I want to read what he has to talk about here. Now the story on uh, that's on telegraph is seven myths Apple is using to justify their 30% tax on apps. That's a great debunking of all the arguments for why, no, no, Apple needs to do the 30%. It ultimately is a win-win for you when, no, it's not. So that uh, I will link to in the show notes. That's not what I want to read because in Duroff's channel on Telegram, he actually uh, did a completely separate post, which is not seven myths, but seven reasons every iPhone user should be worried about the App Store's 30% tax. And it's a tremendous breakdown. Um, let me, let, let's read this in the last few months, many prominent app developers voiced their disapproval of the app store policies. Apple imposes uh, on all apps. Why should that concern you? If you own an iPhone, here are seven reasons. One higher prices. Apple's 30% commission makes all apps and digital goods more expensive for you. It goes on. Uh, it goes on top of the price you pay to developers for any services and games you buy on your phone. You pay more for every app, even though Apple already charged you a few hundred dollars more for your iPhone than it costs to make. In short, you keep paying even after you have paid. It's point one. It's, it's a fair one. Uh, granted, granted, <laughs> I am not going to necessarily claim that Android is that much better. Android is only any better in its openness, right? In the openness that it allows for alternative app stores. I mean, you, you know, this, this point has to get made here. Okay. Before we read on with the other ones. So the reason that a lot of uh, Android phones 
can be sold for sub, frankly, sub $100. Yes, it can. Uh, is because ultimately the, 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 uh, uh, manufacturer say, I don't know. I mean, I, I could name names, but it's somewhat conjectural as to what they're collecting, but it's a, you know, we know how they're making this money. Uh, but pick your manufacturer. They are making money off of, a lot, frankly, I think a lot of a lot of data collection, right? Um, that that comes from their apps, right? It doesn't have to be that I don't know that that Nokia's phone is necessarily um, collecting anything about you, like the hardware itself. I mean, it is, but it's ultimately getting fed into apps by Nokia that either you know goes to well, you take your pick. But I mean, there's data being collected that basically subsidizes that low price of that phone. Yes. It's also lower price because they're using lower end hardware or whatever, you know, and they're not charging the Apple tax as it were. The Apple tax of course is not 30% tax. The Apple tax is the, what the infamous uh, nomenclature for you're paying more just because it's Apple, not because it's actually better than anything out there. In fact, it's probably not, but anyway, that's the Apple tax. So, it's important to understand that, that Android, you know, like their phones being cheaper, they are making money in different ways off of you. All right. So let's, let's not, you know, I mean, are there ways to around that to keep them from doing so? Of course. All right. Or at least some degree. Uh, but you know, and, and of course I talk about those sorts of things on like, I mean, you're talking to the guy again, who literally wrote the book on Android security. Uh, in fact, is working on a new version right now called dark Android. Um, you can find it on Amazon of all things. But anyway, um, so you got to understand that the other part you have to understand is that the, you know, like, so, so I give Android credit for giving you the option to have alternative app stores. Like you can install F droid and you can use all kinds of apps totally for free, which is amazing, you know, and they're open source and blah, blah, blah. Great. Right. So you can do that. With, with Apple, that's, it's not impossible, but it might as well be. And this is what makes a lot of Apple's practices really indefensible, in my opinion. Because a lot of people would say, well, Apple can charge whatever the fuck they want. They want to charge a 30% tax, you know, or, you know, a 30% uh, uh, overhead on, or yeah, tax, basically overhead on, on apps and all this stuff. Sure, what the hell, let them, you know, and if you don't like it, go compete somewhere else. Well, there's a bit of a problem here because of the tight integration between hardware and the operating system when it comes to the mobile space, more so than is true within laptops. But let's be clear here that Apple spends millions, if not billions of dollars every year on lobbying, you know, uh, uh, well, basically the government, whatever branch, lobbying the government to take action, legal action, which legal action always basically ends with the gun, right? So your, your life is getting threatened. If you want to jailbreak your iPhone, I, I mean, like they, they, they spend so much money on that. They are basically making it illegal for you to compete. Even if you wanted to. So it's very tough to come up with some kind of libertarian defense or argument for what Apple is doing here. No, 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 no. Not when, the option, say, of competition, if you believe in that, not when that option is basically taken off of the table on iPhones because Apple is lobbying so goddamn hard for you to not to be able, you know, for you not to be able to jailbreak your phone. 
But carrying on, um, this is a fun one. Let's go with the next one here. Number two, censorship. Ooh, this is a big one. And this is like the biggest one that actually I wanted to read and talk about. Not that I necessarily have to say too much on it based on, uh, beyond what Pavel Durov said, but this is something that I don't think people realize about iPhone. Okay, and here we go. Censorship. Some content in apps like Telegram is unavailable to you because Apple censors what is allowed on the App Store, which it fully controls to enforce the 30% tax. Apple even restricts us, app developers, from telling our users that certain content was hidden for iPhone users specifically at their request. Apple should realize how ridiculous their attempts to globally censor content looks. Imagine a web browser deciding which websites you are allowed to view. So to understand this, Apple will block content and features from apps that will pass on Google, on the Google play store, right? Which I think the easy argument that people or the low hanging fruit that somebody would want to go through to defend this action would be, yeah, but they got to protect the privacy of the users. Got to protect the privacy of the users. Well, we're going to talk about a lack of privacy in the next one. That is just not true for Apple, okay? But that that said, all right, I mean, regardless of the, the you know, whatever argument you're going to come up with that, that itself is horseshit, all right? Because again, Google, look, Google takes security really fucking seriously. Do they drop the ball on it often enough? Sure. But then part of the reason they do that is because you know about it, right? Because there's some more openness on the platform that you can find out as to where with iOS, that's not true. In fact, man, I could get into it a whole argument. There is a major, major problem when Apple acquires or Aqua hires, you know, when they bring in people um, and I get, you know, there's times where I'm on Twitter and I'll see friends or people I know, developers, whatever, who say they go off to go work for Apple. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. Now, the reason I say, oh, fuck, is not because I hate Apple or something. Maybe I do, but not because I hate Apple and I don't want my friends to go work for them. It's because the knowledge that that person has, say they're a great cryptographer or something like that, the knowledge that they have just got all got put behind an iron curtain. It just all got, it, it turned, it got basically got memory hold into Apple's ecosystem, never to be taken advantage of by the broader public. And that's a pity. Like that, we're, we're all lessened by that, especially as far as security goes. And part of that, or a major part of that is due to the lack of openness um, involved in iOS. And look, look, the argument that somehow, you know, closed source is the only way you can truly secure shit that that's been blown out of the water. That's been blown out of the water for years now. There's a reason Microsoft is investing so much in open source. There's a reason so many companies are investing so much in open source because they know the only way we can truly have security is if as many eyeballs as possible are hitting that code. And the only way you can allow for that is through open source. Apple's argument for closed source allows for greater security is horseshit for the highest degree. But Apple, you know, for, for an app developer can block features, content, whatever, and can basically shut them up, the developer, to where you never know. You have no idea. And don't, again, don't give me the crap about security because it's not like Google doesn't take in any, any bit less. But there is no problems in getting stuff through 
uh, you know, varying features and whatever else on Google Play that Apple somehow finds objectionable. When often enough, it usually just comes down to, uh, you know, just Apple wants to make sure that they're getting the, the fucking highest cut out of it. You know, and, and look, is there anything wrong? I say this, I have a response to this. Profit is not a dirty word. You are right. You are so right that profit is not a dirty word. But as I say in response to Miss Rand, value isn't a dirty word either. And the whole PC revolution and the mobile revolution, all of that was ultimately about being consumer facing. They, these actions by Apple and people are suddenly the Piper is getting paid so many things. I mean, we talked about this in a, in a recent episode as well, where, you know, now, Oh, or, yeah, we were talking about Twitter subscription service, like all the stuff that was free, all the stuff that you thought, Oh well, yeah, it's an IAP or whatever else, all this, the Piper is starting to have to get paid. And now people are realizing, Hey, you know, the pricing structures that we've had, uh, for, you know, mobile and the internet in general for decades, uh, that's not working for us anymore. We, you know, it's favoring the few, but it's not favoring, you know, the upstart or the startup or whatever. And that's creating all kinds of problems. So anyway, you have no idea that content was blocked, right? And I think Pavel Duras point that, you know, imagine a web browser deciding which websites you're allowed to view. Now, actually that does happen with Google Chrome. In fact, we've talked, that's been going on for years. Um, and there's a reason that there's still an ardent amount of people uh, or, you know, an ardent few. And I, I'd say it's not few. It's quite a lot that still use Firefox or alternatives to Chrome because they don't want to fall prey to what Google says is safe and not. This is very similar. Again, I'm not playing favorites with Google here. Don't think I'm being an and making an argument and being an Android fanboy. By no means am I that. I, I will rip on all sides. I'm good at it. It's what I do on Sovereign Tech. And I'll promote those and I'll, you know, I'll certainly congratulate those who do things right. But this is a major, major problem. You had no idea, I bet, that Apple was engaging in that degree of censorship that it comes right down to content, not even necessarily feature set or the fact that, you know, for a while farting apps weren't allowed or the fact that even to this day, torrent, torrent apps, which torrenting is a completely legitimate form of data transmission, are not allowed on um you know, on, on Apple's plan or well on, on iOS anyway. Now I was going to say, I mean, again, a lot of this comes down to like blocking features and making sure that there isn't some kind of feature that Apple doesn't like that all comes down to Apple wanting to make money. There is no reason that you shouldn't be able to buy Kindle eBooks on the fucking Kindle app. When you can buy audiobooks in the audible app, why the fuck <laughs> are you, are you not allowed to buy Kindle eBooks, you know, in the Kindle app on, uh, and I know you can go, or I had it explained to me by a listener. I understand that you can go to the website of, of Amazon, you know, the mobile site on your, even using Safari at that on your iOS device. And then you can buy the Kindle eBooks there and then download them to your app. But I mean, because that workaround is so simple, why Apple, why the fuck are you doing that? Why? Because you want people to go through Apple books. You don't want competition. And that ultimately ends up in censorship. So let's go on to the next one here. Uh, lack of privacy. In order to install an app from the app store, you must first create an Apple account and log in using it. After that, every single app you download and every push notification you receive is tied to your account, making you an easier target to track. Stanley, breaking in for a second here. 
I talked about this and how egregious and how much of a pain in the ass this was when I recently got my iOS device. I couldn't believe it, the amount of info that you had to hand over just to get your device going. With an Android device, even with stock Google Android on it, you can basically hit skip and you can at least use the device. And, you know, you could very quickly install Android and go about the business. You don't even have to put Lineage OS. You don't have to put uh, uh, Graphene OS. You don't have to put any of that on. You can just skip and you're done. You don't have to log into any account. Is Google still going to collect the data about you? Yeah, maybe, sure. <laughs> but at least it's not so fucking egregious and tied. And at the very least, there are actions you could take, I think, that 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 would uh, 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 foil. Or, or, yeah, whatever. Anyway, that, that would fuck it up for Google as far as data collection goes. But regardless, again, I'm not defending Google. Let's keep reading. Since the main reason you have to, or the main reason you have to use an Apple account to download an iPhone app is Apple's desire to enforce their 30% commission. The cost of their greed also includes your private data. Bammo. It is not about privacy. Um, let's see. Delays in app updates. And this is crucial. Uh, you get new versions of your app several days or weeks after they are actually ready because Apple's review team is notorious, notoriously inefficient and often delays approval for no apparent reason. You would think Apple could use the billions of dollars it receives from third-party apps to hire additional moderators. Somehow they are unable to do even that. And us big apps like telegram typically have to wait several days or even weeks to publish updates. And you know what the big problem there is, is that sometimes these are massive security updates that, that solve a very serious exploit. And for Apple to be inefficient about this process, and especially to take that 30% commission and not put it towards actually what they're talking about. If you read the article that I linked to in the show notes, that's about the seven myths around the 30% commission, we know you know, that, that what it costs for them to moderate, like they they are not putting the amount of money that they could into that. They, they are being just, just flat out inefficient and just not caring. That's a problem. Uh, let's go on. I mean, especially when it comes to security, worse apps. Here's the last one. Uh, billions of dollars are often taken from developers who could otherwise spend, uh, spent those funds on improving the quality of the apps you use every day. Instead, this money rests idly in Apple's offshore bank accounts whoo, and does nothing for the world while app developers struggle to find resources for the research and development the world needs. The situation is so bad that one would expect Apple's 30% cut to be unsustainable yet. It's been around for more than 10 years and is still there. Uh, Anyway, and then he links to the Telegraph post. Uh, he explains how Apple has been able to trick consumers and regulators into inaction for so long. This practice is completely out of hand because it doesn't ben it doesn't even benefit the developer. It clearly, as as Pavel Durov stated, and as I you know expanded upon, it does not benefit the consumer. And if it doesn't benefit the developer, it only benefits Apple. And I think ultimately, you know, holds, I mean, cause you could say, well, but you know, this is creating so many opportunities for, oh, I mean, there's so many people who wouldn't be millionaires if the app store wasn't a thing at all. No, look, 
The app store can exist fine. iPhones can cost $2,000 if you really want to, if you care that much because you think having an iPhone is the only way you're going to get laid. Uh, because, you know, if a gal sees you holding an Android device, they're not going to touch you. You know, I mean, you could still do all, like this practice doesn't have to be for people to become millionaires. If anything, I would argue quite the opposite, that it is keeping many people or many more people from being millionaires or from, you know, coming up with all these incredible things that creates grander infrastructures for people to be able to take advantage of and create at the very least, very comfortable living or, you know, living situations, living wages. I don't know if I don't, I know people bristle at that term, but whatever, you know what I mean? It's doing quite the opposite. These are not pro consumer actions. This is not a pro consumer uh, you know, 30% commission. It's not pro developer either. Like I said, it only helps Apple when Apple could easily turn this into a triple win. Apple could win. A developer could win. The consumer can win, but no, Apple's got some weird plans. I mean, I can't begin to tell you how fucking stupid it is. And this is a major, major problem. How fucking stupid it is to, and I did my review of iOS, you know, of iOS 13, uh, a few episodes ago when I was talking about this device, but it is so stupid that I can't transfer a fucking PDF or an MP3 to my, to my iOS device, unless I connect it or unless, you know, I, I got it basically, you know, in I mean, there's ways around this, but ultimately in standard, in standard ways, I mean, if I want to do it with an Android device, I plug in a USB port, you know, USB, uh, uh, uh you know, cord, into the, you know, into the Android device and boom, it, you know, instantly I can just transfer files to an SD card and wherever else and blah, blah, blah. Nice openness. Okay. Does that come at a cost of security? All right. I understand somewhat of the argument there, but again, I, I don't think that this is necessarily about security. Um, they may want to argue that it's that, but I don't think it's really that because if Apple cared about security, they would hurry the fuck up with app reviews, making sure that the latest exploits are constantly getting plugged with all, with all of these apps, especially one that so many people rely on, particularly something like Telegram, right? But to transfer a PDF or an MP3 file, I have to have iTunes installed. I have to have, basically I have to have a fucking account, right? I mean, to even have the iOS device. And then I have to, not just have iTunes installed. I have to transfer the file through iTunes into the app and into the folder on there. I mean, I can't even, I mean, the file manager on here is a fucking joke on iOS. Okay. The only, or the other way I could go about it is, oh, I could transfer it to a cloud service. Oh, basically the only way that I can put any kind of personal data. Okay. Or files of my own onto an iOS device is that I have to run it through Apple's software as in I have to run it through iTunes or I have to schlep it off and effectively whore it off to some cloud service, like I don't know, OneDrive or whatever. You could say Google drive, but then why own an iOS device? If you're just going to connect to Google shit, like that kind of defeats the one nice thing I suppose about an Apple uh, device about an iOS device is that you have alternatives and you don't have to install Google's horseshit. But no, I have to run all of my personal stuff through somebody. It can't just be between me and the device. It's got to go through Apple or it's got to go through whoever. I mean, it, just, it doesn't make the iOS 
is the biggest running joke in tech today. It is hindering far more than it's empowering anybody by leaps and bounds. And again, it's not just about the consumer. I can sit here and complain all day about an iOS device not letting me transfer files, uh, about like the fact that I can't torrent on it, or torrent on it, about the fact that, well, what it does with the, uh, even when I have one that has a, uh, you know, one eighth jack on it, right? And I can plug in headphones that for some reason, when I speed up videos on YouTube, it sounds like shit and I don't understand why. Or if I want to listen to, uh, you know, unless it comes from a, a, an official app, you know, I can't listen to things sped up, uh, or because there's no great MP, you know, a local, local file MP3 player on this whole fucking app store. I could complain about all those things all day long. That's just the consumer. But now it has gotten to the point where developers, which means people's jobs are on the line at a time where jobs are, uh, well, job market's a little rough these days. The argument for the practices that Apple engages in, there is no argument. There's no good argument for it. There are lots of greedy arguments on Apple's part. I mean, I get it, you know, because you know what's really going on is that Apple is basically, and yes, just about every major company out here out there does this. Apple is making false bullshit little numbers to please their investors, to appease their investors. And they do so because they don't want you to find out that people are still using their iPhone four, or they don't want you to, you know, they don't want people to know. I mean, they already hid these numbers a couple of years ago, you know, at, at investor calls, they don't want people to know that, well, shit, iPhones aren't selling. We're in trouble. And they have to put all the, all these bullshit metrics out. They've created I know I've used this term already once during this episode, but let me say it again. They have created an economic fiction within their company, and it almost solely re uh, revolves around this 30% commission. But this economic fiction is holding everybody back from development, security, uh, affordability. I mean, so many of the things that I thought Silicon Valley was all about bringing to the people. I guess not. I'll be right back with some more sovereignty. From Big Finish Productions, Blake 7, the classic audio adventures. I'm taking Liberator in on manual. We'll be in teleport range in two minutes. What the hell was that? Information. Liberator has been attacked. You don't say. Put up the force wall. Confirm. Message to all ground commanders. Initiate the final phase. Let's crush these rebels once and for all. My name is Avon. Kerr-Avon. Kerr-Avon. Our hostage arrives, which you may be unnecessary. As a hostage, it's nice to be superfluous. You can go to Blake7.com to find more of the new adventures of one of science fiction's greatest masterpieces. Blake7 at Blake7.com. Your questions, the man of tomorrow's answers. Email questions at sovereigntech.com. Time for important messages. You know, we're going to skip 
uh, HackSec this week. But at some point, I want to talk about this because I have a lot of people saying, hey, I don't trust Signal anymore. I don't even trust Telegram. I have the small group that I want to communicate with and so on. But we want to be able to do it cross-platform. We want to do it on, you know, smartphones as well as on desktop and whatever. And, you know, look, we're just, we're done with, you know, for varying reasons, they're done with Signal or you name it. Um, I've been wanting to do an update on Riot, which actually is now called Element. They've changed their name because they are talking about going peer-to-peer. Um, far more peer-to-peer. And there is a conversation to have around that. I will get to that. Okay. I'm not going to get to that in this episode. I originally planned to, but I will get to that. Um, I'm not saying that it's the end all be all solution for you, but that also actually really has to do with a listener question, but I got a great listener question. And since it's kind of the hot thing going right now, uh, I wanted to talk about it. I want to get into this here. So, the, the question, it was in the, of all things, the Telegram group, <laughs> which if you want to join the Telegram group, um, the link is in the show notes all over the place. Very easy to find. Come and join. Great conversations happening there all the time. And I mean it. And great stories, stories that sometimes I might not be able to get to here that people are sharing that are absolutely relevant to how, to what you do when you walk out your door or just sit in your house. So I absolutely recommend it. It is Next to maybe the Security Now podcast, it is a great addendum to what is going on or, you know, to what we talk about on Sovereign Tech. So please do join that if you haven't yet. Um, but I want to get into this, this question, and it's it's a good one. It's a conversation I wanted to have anyway, but when somebody asked it in the Telegram group, great listener, uh, it, it gave me the excuse, gave me impetus. So here we go. So here's a good question. That's how it starts. With the surprisingly low cost of a new Pixel 4a, how do these devices stack up once custom firmware is loaded? I'd much like to de-Google a Pixel, but don't want to spend 4XL, as in Pixel 4XL, money. Since it's new, I realize I can't directly ask that for the 4A, but in general, the Pixels are overall good phones, yes. I wonder how long it will take to get uh, a Copperhead OS released. Um, so, okay, so I want to talk about this, because when the Pixel 4A was announced, and we knew the 4A, the, the Pixel 4A was a thing. And it was originally, I think, supposed to come out in May, but because of coronavirus, it didn't happen. Um, in fact, some some commentators, some, some analysts, shall we say, were wondering, is this thing even going to come out? Because come October, Google's got to come out with new Pixel phones, right? And we know about those as well now. So Google had their announcement. Um, you know, nobody's holding events, really, or not traditional events anymore. So Google held had an announcement uh, about a week a week or so ago that where they announced the, the, uh, the pixel 4a, then there is the, then there's the, the pixel five. And there's also, was it another pixel four basically? And, and so the 4a, like the five, they said, you know, those are coming there. There's, I think there's two models of the five, I guess. Okay. So, so you have the five XL and the five, I think regardless, uh, yeah, it's something like that. Or it's the five G right. The pixel five G. Anyway, we'll, we'll explain the difference here. So the Pixel 4a, and I was, I don't want to get a new phone, but as, like I said, as somebody who writes security manuals for Android, I need the latest versions of Android. I need access to these things. The best way to get that is with Pixel phones, right? Because they get guaranteed three years of operating system updates as in they will get the new versions of, of operating systems for up to three years. Uh, and they get security updates even beyond that. 
it's the best deal in software. You know, we we're just spending all that time talking about how Apple fucks things up with software. Google admittedly to their credit has done a little bit of a better job where they have decoupled security updates from major operating system revisions and made them more readily available for other manufacturers, but also on their own phones that they manufacture, uh, they make sure that they are getting updates just nonstop and for a long, long time. Um, it's, a, I mean, it is within the traditional or within the conventional, you know, iPhone uh, or not iPhone within the conventional smartphone duopoly. It's a great deal. Yes. I know iPhones, you know, iOS devices get updates for a good long while as well. I understand that, but then also they don't decouple them to where you could get separate security updates even later into a life after major OS revisions are no longer released for a device like it's so with Android. Okay. So the Pixel 4a, I'm just going to say this outright. So it, it's coming out. You can pre-order it now. I think it comes out the 24th of August. If you are looking for a new phone, this is the phone to get. And I will tell you why. All right. And I'll, I'll make it very, very quick here. Okay. We have had many conversations around 5G. Has nothing to do with health. Don't, don't lump me in like that. We can, we can, we, we have arguments against 5G that have nothing to do with what people consider health concerns or bees dying or whatever else. Okay, if you want to go that distance, you can. All right. But there are reasons. And I said recently on the show, I said, I will not be buying a 5G phone. I will walk away from the world as it were before I will buy a 5G phone. I am not interested in propping up the security and privacy nightmare that is the 5G infrastructure. I didn't say anything about health. I said security and privacy nightmare. Now, 4G on its own is already that, but this is that on, on, on more steroids than Arnold could even dream of handling or Dorian Yates. So I have no interest in a 5G phone. If you agree with the arguments that I made, had nothing to do with health, Nothing conspiratorial in that direction. If you agree with my arguments, this is the last great phone to buy. And I absolutely consider this to be the last phone, probably smartphone that I'll ever buy. This is the, this is it. It's the end of the road because the model, the pixel models. And again, you want to buy pixel models because for two reasons, one, if you're into the Google play store or whatever else, or, you know, you're into the Android ecosystem as is Google stock, you, uh, you're going to get the best update options and thus the best security with a pixel phone. That's just a fact. Not even Samsung compares. Yeah. We could talk about essential or oxygen OS or whatever I, I know, but as far as Google stock, this is the way to go now. So, so that's part of the reason you want a pixel phone. Okay. Also this phone is inexpensive. It's 300. I mean, in comparison to other phones, it's all relative, right? $350. And there's only one model. It has 128 gig, 128 gigabytes of onboard storage, no SD card. I know that sucks, but it's there. It does have a headphone jack. Kudos to that. Um, it has six gig of Ram has a somewhat lower end processor, but a tremendous battery. This is by the conventional specs. In my opinion, a great phone. It's considered a mid ranger, a budget phone. I think it's, I think it's right on point. The only flaw that I see with it is that it's not, um, what is it? I, uh, IPX 68. 
or uh, yeah, I, I think that's it, right? That it's not waterproof like a lot of other phones are. That that's a problem. That sucks. But otherwise, like the phone I use right now is the the Android One edition of the Moto X Four. Another great phone, but unless you go with Lineage OS or something like that, you're not going to get Android 10 on it, unfortunately. You still get security updates. I'm updated all the way up to July. Uh, you know, actually, actually, I think the August update's even rolling. But, you know, that that's nice. But, I mean, you know, again, I if you want that latest operating system, I mean, you know, we can get into Strandhog 2 or, and you know, all this other stuff where that only gets resolved on Android 10. Part of the reason I wanted an Android 9 phone is because there were a lot of exploits that only Android 9 uh, was able to resolve, okay, or was able to patch. It didn't matter if you had 7, 8, or whatever. It, like, 9 was the only thing that could patch it. So you want to get the latest operating system versions. Now, the second thing with Pixel phones is that the most secure Android derivative ROM, as they call them or whatever, uh, out there is not Lineage OS. Lineage OS is fine, but the best one out there is actually Graphene OS. And that is only developed for Pixel devices. The Pixel 4a, I don't know if they've started on that, but it's a pretty good bet you're going to get it for the Pixel 4a. So that's the second reason that you want to jump on that, because if you want to get, if you want to de-Google it like you talked about, you're going to want to put Graphene OS on it, and you're going to need a Pixel phone to do so. Okay, in Copperhead OS, when that was more of a thing, that was also the direction that they were going where they were only developing for Pixel phones. So you want, you know, that's that's why you want that. But basically, the argument totally comes down to, I mean, yeah, the features it has, you know, its specs, they're nice. They're nice. And I guess the camera's great. Whatever. That that, that doesn't matter to me. Uh, but, you know, the battery life being, you know, getting you through the day, maybe even a day and a half or so. I mean, that's dynamite. Having the one-eighth jack, you know, having the headphone jack, that's awesome. Um, you know, six gig of RAM, holy shit, <laughs> right? I've got computers around that don't have that. Uh, I mean, you know, in the 128 gigabyte of storage and all for 350 bucks, that's pretty good. Uh, again, the water lack of waterproofing, that kind of stinks, but you're on point with that. And also if you use Google Fi, of course, this only makes sense. But the big deal here, in my opinion, is that this is the latest Pixel phone and maybe the last Pixel phone that will not have 5G. This is, the, this is the last one that's going to have 4G. So this is your entry point. And I will make a prediction that this phone is going to be popular for a long, long time. Partly because it was one of the very last phones that does not have 5, 5G on it. Because I think that there is a particular segment in, well, both in the world and in the tech world that is not interested in jumping on 5G. I mean, and like we talked about, Samsung's or Samsung is already looking to, you know, they're going to 6G and we already talked about, we did a whole episode where we broke down what this plan ultimately means or what this uh, rollout ultimately means. And there are problems there. Again, it's not the health argument. It's not the killing bees argument. It's none of that crap. Okay. And I'm not even necessarily saying that that's crap, but it's just none of that stuff. Okay. This is the last 4G phone, ultimately. Will there be little companies out there that will probably put out 4G phones for the next, I don't know, five, six years or something? Yeah, maybe. Maybe that that will be a thing. Eventually, though, you know, where these companies get their, their inexpensive, shall we say, their inexpensive uh, uh, chips and hardware, 
eventually those are just by the network effect, as it were, are only going to offer 5G chipsets. So no, I don't know that that's going to be, uh, you know, that those are going to be made available by little companies for a very long time. All right. Well, you can't guarantee on that. But then also, usually these lower end phones often don't get what we're talking about this whole time, the latest operating system updates, right? Or the latest operating system, or they are not being actively developed for by more security hardened uh, Android derivatives like Graphene OS or even Lineage OS and so on. So that's why I say, that if you're in the market for a new phone, or if you want to get that update, this is literally the last phone. It's the last great phone. It's the last phone. I mean, I, I, I'm not, I am dead serious. And I know I had some people email me and they couldn't believe what I was saying. No, I'm not fucking kidding. I will do what it takes to get out of the system before I will buy a 5G enabled device. I have no interest in getting into that infrastructure whatsoever. It is a problem. It is far worse than anything I've ever described on Sovereign Tech. The surveillance society today is nothing compared to what that's going to allow for, among other things. And ultimately, it's just a buzzword, and people are going to find that like the ways they make money off of 5G are bullshit, just like the ways Apple makes money are bullshit. And you know they'll get into 6G, and then maybe they'll have something figured out if civilization's even here by then. So grab the Pixel 4a. I think it's it's probably your best option, like you're asking. The lack of waterproofing sucks, but everything else, it's just the way to go. But consider it perhaps the last phone. I'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech. Hello, Sovereignati. As you know, Sovereign Tech proudly no longer puts content behind a paywall and makes thousands of hours and episodes available to you totally for free. But if you feel that stirring in your cockles or that special feeling in your heart, I beseech you, nay, I implore you to help the show out by donating. Frequenting our sponsors is key, but donations from listeners like you has always made the show go round and round. You can go to SovereignTech.com to set up an automatic monthly donation, or you can donate via the Bitcoin address in the show notes. And now you can even donate with the Cash app at Cash.app and use the money tag SovereignTech. So many ways to help out the show, and I'm honored by all of it, allowing us to build and be the future. Now, let's get back to the show. Now entering the gaming grid. The latest gaming news, reviews, and retro culture, as only the man of tomorrow can deliver. And here is your host, Brian Sovereign. It is time for the gaming grid. And what you don't know, well, now you're going to know, because I'm going to tell you is that I just took <laughs> about a three or four hour break. It wasn't really a break. Uh, cause about an hour, half of that was working out. 
between what I just recorded and now. And then, of course, uh, watched the season four opener for Babylon 5 with, with of course, the, the absolutely incomparable and wonderful and stunning Ellen Sovereign. And what a wonderful time we had. Uh, she has, has confessed to me that it is the greatest show in television history as my old ad that I will bring back at some point. I always, I mean, look, I've been running Babylon five ads for 10 years. Uh, <laughs> it's not going to stop. Sometimes I just give you a little break, but, um, anyway, that <laughs> it's, it's good to get some vindication, even though I've heard it from many more of you, uh, just how damned good that show is. It is the best of all time. And that's no disrespect to star Trek. Uh, but boy, you know, I mean, these days I'm happy to disrespect Star Trek right and left, all that new horse shit that we get pounded on us. Uh, I know I've had a lot of people email me asking, hey, have you watched Lower Decks? No. <laughs> no. Uh, it is a crazy world we live in, and that has nothing to do with shootings and all other kinds of crazy stuff happening all over the world. But the gaming grid is here to give us a little bit of a reprieve and perhaps a, a good time. Uh, the first thing I'm going to talk about does not look like a good time. <laughs> Unfortunately, as much as I was really hoping it would be, but I have basically no interest in this, uh, after seeing the trailer for it. But as soon as we're done talking about that, I'm going to talk about two things that are still actively developed that are absolutely worth your time. I mean, that, 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 you know, you can walk away from this episode with something to do. And if everything we've talked about has freaked you out just so much that you have run and bought a laptop, not a new one, <laughs> but you've bought a laptop and you installed OpenBSD on it, of all things, which I might happen to have one of those right next to me, hmm. you could still play what I am going to talk about. And you don't have to even go online to do it. How about that? Yeah, get ready for that. But before we get into the good stuff, we got to talk about the shit, right? Let's talk about the veggies before we get to the dessert. <laughs> I love vegetables. What are you talking about? Um, here we go. The announcement dropped. This was uh, just at the beginning of August, and that was uh, that Battletoads. Yes. Now, normally when I say the phrase or the term Battletoads, I speak that word, that title, that name with reverence, no longer. <laughs> so the new Battletoads, which actually got teased, fuck, I don't know, it feels like that was three years ago when Microsoft said, because of course Microsoft bought Rare, Rare originally made Battletoads in 1991 for the NES, one of the best games for the NES, one of the last titles for it, in fact. Uh, but I just think, a, a tr I I mean, a game that is balls hard, but man, is it a, just a load of fun uh, and, and really pushed the nest to its limits back in 1991. I mean, the classic adventure with uh, good old Rash, Pimple, and Zitz saving Princess Angelica, right, from none other than the Dark Queen. Well, you just talked, I just mentioned my, perhaps my favorite thing, but then also the thing that troubles me, nay, the most in this, uh, this new version of Battletoads. So I don't know if this is exactly a remake, you know, it, it looked a lot like it. I mean, look, the gameplay looked fine. The, the trailer with the story and the interstitials and everything 
that's where things for me really seem to fall apart. Now, if I don't care about story and all I care about is gameplay, uh, I mean, I guess if I'm that kind of person, but also I'm not the kind of person that just dances, not giving a shit what the lyrics is to the music. Okay. I'm a person that looks at the, the whole damn picture. And I think people would do well to be such, but then I guess granted most people are morons. And so, you know, they don't, uh, and they just dance along to the, uh, the sound of the loot, but not I. So anyway, August 20th on PC and Xbone, Xbox one, we will be getting a new Battletoads game. Again, I don't know if it's a remake. I'm going to guess it's a remake and I'll tell you why in a second, but, uh, this does look I guess maybe it was just last year at E3 where they, I think, where they announced that Battletoads is going to be coming back. It took them long enough. Um, so I'll link to the trailer. Okay. I'll link to the trailer. It's coming August 20th. It's actually going to also going to be available on uh, Game Pass, which did they somewhere? I think I read that they dropped some title out of Xbox Game Pass. Anyway. Xbox Game Pass, which is also for PC, is a steal. Like, I mean, what a steal. The amount of games you get for $5 a month to play, granted, I mean, you don't own any of them, but I mean, you can, you can buy them outright if you want. At least they give you the option. I'm glad about that. But at $5 a month, the amount of games on offer uh, with the Xbox Game Pass, and especially for PC, is remarkable. Like, I mean, this is absolutely worth the money, in my opinion. Because for the cost of one AAA game a year, you get ever only, I mean, you get tons of AAA games, you get all the Halo games, you get Streets of Rage 4, you get to, I reviewed it previously. Um, I mean, I don't like subscription services in general, but, you know, I'm not going to lie when there are, you know, I'm not going to beat around the bush when something is of, is really a great value, right? Where the consumer really wins on this. I mean, and, and they, and you really do. It, it's, it's remarkable. So Battletoads will be available that way too. I recommend that's the way to play it. Cause I wouldn't give them, I wouldn't give this any money, uh, any other way. So my kind of what, what really, first off, like the jokes and the, the like the storyline and everything that they're doing in between really doesn't land. And I feel like they made the Battletoads look kind of ridiculous as to where before. Yeah, I get it. It's, it was in response to the Ninja Turtles, which hey, I love, you know, TMNT myself. But it's like they, I don't, they just it looks wacky. It looks a little it, it was always kind of funny, but now it just looks a little too comedic. And not only that, take a look at the Dark Queen. Now, you got to understand something about the Dark Queen, which is she is the villainous uh, throughout the, the Battletoads uh, uh, series. So in fact, a, a quick shot on, uh, on Wikipedia. I mean, we'll, we'll tell you the story here. Um, let's see. She was uh, included on UGO's 2008 list of the top 50 evil women in all of media. Uh, Geeks, Geek World's list of the greatest villains of the 8-bit era uh, in 2011. Complex ranked her as the 10th on the list of most diabolical video game she-villains. Uh, universe, Universo Online ranked her ninth in the 10. And here, ha, see, here's where we're getting at, at even the bigger stuff. 
of 10, the list of 10 most beautiful and deadly game villainesses. Ryan Bates of Game Revolution placed her fourth on his 2014 list of top mean girls in gaming, stating that though the Dark Queen is often noted for her sex appeal, she was one of the first antagonists to set the bar for villainesses in video games, having, quote, showcased she can be as cruel and calculating as the men, end quote. Okay, so... Let's talk about the presentation that we get in this trailer of the Dark Queen. She looks, all right, I mean, yes, let, let's talk about it. And certainly when I was, uh, you know, a younger fellow, it was very, you know, eye-grabbing and fetching uh, seeing the Dark Queen, even on the NES and 8-bit. Um, this is an incredibly sexy character. There, there's, there's, no, there, there's no two ways around this, okay? Uh, like, does she belong on top 10 lists for, you know, like sexiest video game characters and all this other stuff? Absolutely. You know, I mean, from, from, I mean, they, they gave her, well, let's just say it. They gave her, you know, large breasts, uh, you know, the, the alluring hair look, uh, you know, like the, the, the really sexy slinky costume with a little bit of a cape and all this stuff. And that's great. But here's the thing. So like, so sure they went with sex appeal, right? With the dark queen. But as I just read you 20 years later, since this game came out and she's still recognized as, okay, here is one of the most badass, as in evil, as in calculating, as in winning. Like she could thwart the heroes, uh, uh, villains, villainesses, but also villains because she took it right up with the men at a time when there weren't many villainesses in video games at all. You understand? She did. She set the bar. This is a character. I mean, and my love for Battletoads, and I've done top eight lists for NES and for Super Nintendo, you know, for all different systems. And Battletoads, Battletoads always, if a game is available for the system I'm talking about, it is always in my top eight. Always. Because those games are phenomenal. Challenging? Sure, but they're phenomenal. Um, but one of the things that really took me with it is that it is the Dark Queen. Like, she's really what puts it over the top. She's what makes those part of what makes those games so great because the story, yeah, sure, it could be a little comedic, right? Because the Battletoads just have that, you know, bit of a, a funny look to them. But she she's legit, right? I've been using that word way too much in this in this episode, but whatever, I'm going with it. She's legit. And this this trailer A eliminates her sex appeal, which am I surprised? No. Okay. Uh, I, I think that that, frankly, that takes away, uh, not, it doesn't, I mean, you know, whatever you want to toss people in to be sexy for sexy sake. I mean, I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but I get where people have a problem with that. The problem was the problem here is, is that a, they basically made her a nincompoop. At least that's what it looks like in this trailer that she's just constantly frustrated and acting like an ass. Okay. Uh, not the diabolical calculating, incredibly intellectual character that she was before. And the other thing is like, look, you know, if you were going to create like a galactic Empress villain character, do you think logically, logically to conquer her people, to have an air of mystique over her people, do you think she would use sex appeal? Of course she would. I, 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 we, I mean, we have historical precedent for this sort of thing. Uh, 
I mean, we could talk Theodora, Cleopatra. We could go down a whole list like this. Like, it just makes sense, okay? I know, I know. It hurts your eyes because, oh, geez, what what a, a you know, r- ridiculous uh, visual standards to have to live up to. Well, are you kidding me? I've been trying to be a toad since I was 10. I'm being somewhat joking in saying that, but you, you give me a break. This, this game looked so fucking insulting to a tremendous series, to great characters, to characters that still get talked about and end up in top 10 lists to this day. And basically, Microsoft just turned it into a fucking joke. Fuck them. I mean, yeah, like it had comedy to it. Like they're being kind of ridiculous with some things or whatever. And it was meant to be over the top. That's okay. You can be over the top as long as you are sincere. If you are sincere in your presentation, it is believable. And Battletoads was sincere in its presentation. And that's why those games, especially original, even from 91, no matter how hard it was, no matter how many people actually beat it. Because a lot of times I think people that talk about that, they love it. They never even beat the game because good luck. Okay but they still talk about it because it was sincere and it delivered a package that made sense. Dare I say it's a perfect game. I mean, yeah, when you're riding the, you know, the hover cycles and everything and you, when you're like kind of flash out and you can't tell if you can go through, you know, one of the hurdles or not, that sucks. You know, there's hard parts to it, no doubt, but really this is, this is one of the best games ever made and Microsoft basically shit all over it and ripped out. I think they, they completely demeaned the character of dark queen. It is an insult to a, to a powerful female figure. And, and I think, I don't think the battle toads, uh, I don't think they did any favors for them either. So, Hey, I don't know. Maybe the gameplay will be great. Maybe, but the presentation much to be desired. I'm, I'm really, really disappointed. And I just, I don't know. I was half tempted to go outside and chop a tree down on myself (laughs) using a bone from some creature like, like Zitzwood or or rash or anyway. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, come on. You know, it, they had to know. How did Microsoft not know? I mean, they didn't just like not put, they they didn't just like, you know, make Dark Queen, I don't know, flat chested or whatever, you know, whatever, modernizer, kind of like what they did to Laura Croft or something. I mean, whatever, fine. They didn't just do that. Like they put her in like a garage jumpsuit. Like it, it, it just looks dumb. And again, fucking insulting to a character that was delivering a villain that was delivering the goods and that you believed and they had story and that, you know, it just had presentation and was memorable. Imagine that. I mean, this is what I was going to say earlier. The dark queen was what, what Samus Aran did and did well, what Samus Aran did for female video game characters with the original Metroid. Okay. And for female video game heroes, I think on the opposite spectrum, Dark Queen did for female villains in video games. They are part and parcel. And frankly, without her being her, where's the fun in in playing the story? Because you're not taking on a challenging character. You're just taking on something, I don't know, that acts like 
I don't want to say Kim Possible. Kim Possible is a pretty cool character. I, I don't know. Just, just something stupid. I was fucking disappointed. I was really disappointed. Anyway, I don't want to end this on a bad note. Okay. I, I, I want to, I want to talk about, you know, I mean, but watch that trailer. If you, if you're looking to, to, to feel some pain and if you want to hurl some chunks, you go ahead and watch that trailer. Um, let's, let's shift it up. I just happened to, to notice. Um, I was thinking about it when I was kind of, you know, I've been doubling down on some things uh, lately and, and really like, I mean, my security, I like to think is always pretty tight, but I was tightening up just a little bit more. And I'm like, you know, what could I play? What, what classic game? And, and just with a lot of the disappointment, I mean, there's, there's some good gaming news out there, like Pikmin 3 Deluxe. I'm there. It sounds great. Um, but, you know, there, there hasn't been a whole lot of exciting gaming news. And I'm thinking, what's still around? Like, what are, you know, because like Ellen and I were talking, uh, like Age of Mythology, right? So you got this great game you know, from 15 years ago that, that, that still plays tremendous. And I'm like, yeah, there's, there's gotta be other games. And of course, I mean, I've talked about all kinds of classic games, obviously my favorite being tie fighter. I mean, I talk about plenty of classic games, but there are games that, cause what amazed me about age of mythology, which also run by Microsoft, ironically, um, what amazed me was that it's still actively developed. The expanded edition is still actively developed to this day, even though even the re-release has been out for like five years now. And I think I was, what I, what was happening was, is I was going through portable apps, uh, portable apps.com. And I was just updating my portable apps, uh, flat, uh, SD card. And I noticed that two games had updates and I looked at it and I go, wow, these games are still updated. That's amazing. And they are, and they're updated on every platform that they exist on. And basically they're available on every platform. I mean, Hell, they're on uh, even, <laughs> they might even be on Amiga still, <laughs> I think uh, one of them. Um, but they're, you know, they're obviously, they're on Windows, they're on FreeBSD, they're on various Linux, uh, you know, distros. Uh, they're available everywhere. But um, the first one is Warzone 2100. Now, this is a classic. This game is from 1999. And, and listen to me, they're still updated. They're still being worked on. There's still a massive active gaming community around these two games that I'm going to list off. The first one, and I'll put links in the show notes. The first one is, uh, is Warzone 2100. In fact, it was just updated on July 19th, 2020. Um, this is a game. It was originally for the PlayStation. In fact, it was made by IDOS, who of course made plenty of classic PlayStation games or what are now classics. Uh, probably next to Cygnosis, one of the top uh, developers for or game dev game dev houses for the PlayStation. Uh, I mean, Cygnosis was king on the PS one, no doubt about that. Uh, but, but Eidos was certainly up there and Warzone 2100. It's a real time strategy. It actually played pretty well on the PlayStation. In fact, I was rocking it on my PS two, my uh, soft modded PS two uh, recently, but you can totally play this right off of an SD card. In fact, uh, in windows, uh, but you can also play it. I tested it on my open BSD laptop. It worked beautifully there. It got the latest version. Uh, it's up to version 3.4.1 and it's a real time strategy takes place. I mean, the storyline's kind of basic. I think people mainly play it now for the, uh, for the multiplayer, which again is very active. Um, but it's, it's basically, you know, after, uh, after a, a nuclear war of some type, um, and you have this group called the project that, uh, 
that's trying to rebuild civilization without all the, it sounds kind of like Genesis two, right? I don't mean the chapter. I mean the, the, the Roddenberry uh, TV movie, uh, but it's cool. I mean, it's, it, you know, if you're into RTSs, this is a tremendous game to get into Warzone 2100. And these kind of games, I mean, you know, kudos to IDOS for basically putting it under the GNU uh, license. Uh, I mean, o- almost, I don't know, 15 years ago. They said like, here, all right, everybody go ahead and do what you want. Like, have a good time. Uh, it's fantastic. That's how you end a life of game, baby. I mean, that, like, really, that's the way you do it. Uh, so if you're into real-time strategy, this is probably the best one of its type where it's a game that's still out there, classic and active, you know, and, and I love that it plays like a classic RTS. They didn't put, a, put in a bunch of horseshit. Um, though, again, they do continually update the game. Um, the other one I want to mention is, well, it's one of the first games I can ever remember playing on a computer. Not really. It's not this, but something that this is based off of. The other one is our Megatron Advanced. Our Megatron Advanced, keyword is Tron in there, is basically uh, Light Cycles. It's just an open source Light Cycles game from, you know, the movie Tron, right? And also still actively developed. Uh, I think they just had an update come out in February of this year. Um, They're up to, or well, they had a preview release come out recently at version 0.4, not not 1.4, 0.4. And the stable releases version 0.2.8.3.5. This is one that's had a development cycle that's kind of been a bit of a roller coaster up and down. You know, there's people working on it, uh, but still eminently playable today. It also happens to work on uh, OpenBSD. I got it to work there and it's incredible. And, and, and also, I think this one also works on Amigo OS uh, still or Amigo OS 4 anyway. Um this is a game that started development. It wasn't one where like with Warzone 2100 where IDOS basically said, okay, you know, the gaming community can have fun with it. We're done. But you know, this is one that got baked in house from the beginning, starting in the year 2000. Um, And it still uh, has continued. Like I said, development has not stopped at all. And it's basically now what I said, one of the first games I ever played, it's basically, I mean, the whole light cycle sequence in Tron, the movie is basically snakes right? Like that, like the game snakes. That was one of the first games I can ever remember playing on an Apple IIe was snakes. And that's still such an engaging, simplistic game style. But when you put in the slickness and style of Tron, it takes on, you know, it just takes on a whole new flavor. And our Megatron advance. Now you can buy Tron 2.0 out there. Like GOG has Tron 2.0 and all this Tron 2.0 had a great light cycle game built into it. You could certainly do that if you wanted, and and you're going to have a great time. But this is one, again, that is continually actively developed. And I mean, I just, I don't think you can go wrong. And especially the the plethora of operating systems that you can play it upon. Um, These are the games I think that are really precious and that we need to hold on to because they're being made by the community. They're being developed out of love and they're continually being developed and their gameplay is still just as solid as it ever was. And in fact, if anything is only improving as time goes on, these are precious, precious games. I can't stop saying that because when we live in a world where games fall off of app stores uh, or get banned by Apple or, you know, go down the list of all the problems due to uh, digital app store distribution, and that includes steam where games disappear by the day. 
uh, as well as frankly from GOG and others to have games that are just out there where you grab the XE or, you know, or the, the tarball or whatever you want and you go ahead and you have a great time with it. Uh, and you know, no one can take it away from you. We hold on to those and just two classic styles, you know, the classic snakes and then a classic art with, with, with our Megatron advanced, of course, really light cycles, right? That's way cooler. And then of course, one of the best RTSs of all time with Warzone 2100. So go ahead. You bored? You want you want to play a game? You want to rock a game on a nice secure platform? These two are here for you, ready to rock them. Go for it. I'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech. Woo! Hey, baby, I know, I know. You are tired of Gmail. You have had enough. Well, I have a solution for you. What I want you to do is you go to Fastmail, okay? It's fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That's the URL you can use. You're going to get a discount with that. You are going to love this. This is email for email's sake. This company does nothing more. Just email and they do it right. All the latest security technologies you want to log into your account with your YubiKey, you can do that. Fastmail has your hookup. Very inexpensive plans. I want you to check it out. You go to fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That'll get you the hookup. And it's an honor to have them as a part of Sovereign Tech. Woo! Let's get back to the show. The Golden Stallion doing whatever he wants to do. The Climax. It is time for the Climax, where I can talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about. And you know what? I just... I have things I want to get off my chest. You understand? There are a couple of books. I suppose I could have saved this for TIE Fighter Renegades. I know Rob and I are going to have tons to talk about on TIE Fighter Renegades this month. Um, in fact, I think uh, the where the name comes from, the uh, limited run games release of TIE Fighter. Rob was just informing me uh, about that earlier today, that that is finally going to go live on August 21st. Talk about a classic game that you want to play into perpetuity. Uh, I am, I am totally, totally, totally on board with that. I mean, in, in, in every, every fucking way, but I want to talk about these things here. Uh, not before I forget, cause I won't forget, but you know, let's get them out of the way. Let's have a little climax here. I mean, we just ended, I gave you two games, you know, Warzone 2100 and our Megatron advanced. I mean, two absolute classics that you could be rocking. You can go have a good time after you're done listening to this and you're going to need it. No, but, so, okay. Uh, there were books that were announced in January of this year of 2020. Now this January, 2020 is celebrating, what is it? The 20, 25th anniversary, I don't know, whatever of, um, of Star Trek Voyager, which I love Star Trek Voyager. Um, I think there have been times where I've been so bold as to say it's my favorite Star Trek. I know, I know, but live with it. Okay. Star Trek Voyager uh, is the rare, I mean, Enterprise, this was true for as well, but it was the rare show, Star Trek show, at that time in that 18-year run uh, that Star Trek had for a while that was just pure magic. It didn't have a lot of, I mean, they wrote novels, you had varying novels, you know, surrounding it and everything, but there wasn't a lot of extraneous material uh, around Star Trek Voyager, which is disappointing. 
Next Generation had tons. Deep Space Nine had its share. With Voyager, they never bothered. Not a technical manual, nay, nary a compendium of any kind. Nothing along those lines, really, uh, I think, ever, ever really dropped. And, you know, one could argue ratings or something like that is behind that, but whatever. And obviously, Star Trek Enterprise, a tremendous show, uh, got an even shorter shrift as far as all of that goes. But uh, a company that I have been both praised, that I've both praised and been very critical of over the years, uh, that being Eagle Moss uh, or Hero Collector, I don't know, it has a bunch of different names, I guess it depends what country you're in, decided to release a technical manual for Star Trek Voyager this year in celebration. And I thought that was great. I was like, yeah, oh, baby, let's do this. Especially they had already released uh, in the previous year, they had released a technical, another technical manual, full color, hardcover, the whole thing. Um, I mean, nothing will beat Michael Okuda's work, but it was really, really well done and totally worthwhile to own if you're into this sort of thing. I mean, look, folks, I, I take my dreams and my fiction. Uh, I, I come from the Stanley Kubrick school of making media, meaning that Kubrick's rule was, is that the more self-realized Okay. And almost more self-actualized, but like the more, the more that what's the term I'm looking for, the more that a universe that you see on the screen is internally consistent, the more believable what's happening on the screen becomes. Now, this is something that Hollywood is completely forgotten about because now they just don't care, you know, or, or, you know, even like Star Trek today doesn't care. Like in start, you know, the, the finale for season two of Star Trek discovery, where suddenly there, the enter, the NCC one seven Oh one is shitting out thousands of shuttles when, I mean, like, like the amount of shuttles and you, you, you know, there's at least one or two people in each of those shuttles. Uh, I mean, the, the, like there's not enough mass in the enterprise to hold that many people or that many shuttles. It's just stupid. But again, Hollywood doesn't care anymore. They, they don't know how to make movies like, you know, say a Kubrick would. So, and, and I've always been into things like that because it's always made everything that's happening on the screen just that much more real, visceral, and meaningful when you have all of that, when you have that internal consistency. And Star Trek had a great 18-year run where they were doing that almost better than anyone, minus Straczynski with Babylon 5. So... To have a technical manual finally for, I mean, anyway, oh, like I was saying, so they did a technical manual for the next generation, a new one, and they did a, a great tech manual, which there have been ones, but in some ways, I mean, minus Mr. Scott's guide and the Franz Joseph stuff, like this is probably like the first, uh, well, there was the Haynes guide too. Anyway, it it's a technical manual for the Enterprise and the Enterprise A. Very, very well done. Beautiful, stunning presentation. Great work. Great work. I, I mean, th this is how you do a science fiction or an encyclopedia around a fictional universe. They did it, or a, a technical manual, I should say. They did it right. The Voyager book was no less impressive. It finally got released. It was supposed to get released, I think, in like April. Obviously, COVID-19 happened. It ended up coming out in July, middle of July. And it is a tremendous book. So well done. Stunning. Like, even the, the breakdowns of the Delta flyers. Cause you know, there were two of them, uh, was downright inspirational, uh, right down to the racing uniforms. I mean, it, it was fantastic. Very well done. So I heartily recommend if you are into fictional tech manuals, 
I recommend what Eagle Moss put out as far as those go. Now, previous to these um, uh, illustrated handbooks, I think they call them, but they're basically technical manuals. Previous to these technical manuals, they had released, Eagle Moss had released what they called uh, Starfleet or Star Trek Shipyards books. And they've released four of these to date. And basically, so Eagle Moss, they didn't really start out doing books. They started out doing little die cast model uh, ships for varying franchises, not just Star Trek. And actually, the BDSM Studios 3 here uh, is replete and surrounded by a lot of these Eagle Moss ships. Uh, Eagle Moss has made some okay money off of me over the years. So I think I'm more than justified to complain when I, I mean, I can anyway, but <laughs> more than justified to be critical of them when I think that they fuck up royally. And I've complained about fuck ups from them in the past. In fact, I haven't bought a ship from them, at least a Star Trek ship in a very long time, because I think the quality has dropped significantly with what they're doing. And they are basically doubling down on discovery and that's doubling down on failure. So uh, a couple of years ago, anyway, so, so they started releasing these shipyards books. Uh, there's ones that like do kind of the early era of Starfleet then the later era of Starfleet. Then they have one that has to do with uh, like Federation members, like the Vulcan ships and everything from enterprise. Then they did one that was totally around Klingon ships and the one around Klingon ships was uh, disappointing because around half of it, was all these ridiculous, and I mean, they are just ridiculous, poorly designed, outrageous. I mean, yeah, they're artistic, sure, but they're not starships. Uh, <laughs> they, they just look stupid. Uh, these these poorly designed Klingon ships, half of it is, is Klingon ships from Discovery. That was disappointing. But still, it was pretty much half and half. And there was a, you know, a pretty clean break in the book. And the break happened early on enough in the book to where I didn't mind. Okay, now we'll get into the real Klingon ships that we've known from the original series, Enterprise, Next Gen, uh, you know, DS9, and so on. Um, so that was fine. But now, so the, and, and really all these are, these shipyard books are just compilations of the magazines that they ship to you, no pun intended, with the ships that you buy that give you like technical information, whatever. And these magazines have, Lately, it's part of the reason I don't buy Star Trek ships from them anymore, have lately, I mean, just, just fallen off the cliff as far as quality and even just density of information. It's been, it's been really disappointing and, I, you know, I'm just not going to support it anymore. But you know what? They, they got me with one thing. They got the Battlestar Galactica license and they had the guts to not only do Galactica ships from uh, the talk about shit shows from the terrible and that's putting it mildly, uh, Ronald, Ron Moore, you know, Battlestar Galactica that ran on, on Siffy, um, you know, just that mess of a show that had no plan and, and no idea what they were doing. Um, you know, they had that, but then they also released ships from the 1978 Galactica, which that now on the other hand is one of my favorite shows of all time. So they got me because, Ooh, I can get a Viper again. I can get a fairly good sized uh, uh, die cast model of the original Battlestar Galactica, which by the way, as somebody who for a while there was checking Eagle Moss's site almost by the day to see when a new release would come out. Um, it was amazing to me that the 
original series Galactica models, like the Viper and the Base Star and everything, would sell out regularly. Like, I mean, they couldn't keep them in stock. But the new BSG stuff, oh, no. <laughs> you, you never had to worry if they were going to be available or held. Most of the time, they were on sale. Now, one could get into somewhat of an argument that, like, uh, anyway, I'm, all right, I'm, I'm not going to just rip on new Battlestar Galactica for an hour. I, I did that for too many years on, on Sovereign Tech already. Uh, anyway, so as far as the classic Galactica models, which have sold out regularly, like I said, they've really only come out with five. There's the Cylon Raider, the Galactica itself, um, the the Viper, the Colonial Viper, Mark One, the and then, and did I say the Base Star, the Cylon Base Star? And also the Land Ram, which I thought was an interesting choice. So they decided, and, and this was originally also supposed to come out in like in April, I think. And then they just backed it up along with the, the Voyager book. And then, and I get it. I understand why that happened. I'm not mad about that. So they backed, they backed up this uh, Galactica Shipyards book um, to, to August. And it finally came out. I, it came in, landed on my desk last Tuesday. It flew off my desk last Tuesday, meaning I returned it instantly. So I'll tell you why. And, I, and again, I'm really, really disappointed by this. And then there's somewhat of a larger point here, I suppose. The book is broken up into three sections. There's a section for Blood and Chrome, right, which is the the prequel web series for uh, New BSG for you know Ron Moore's horseshit. Then it's Ron Moore's horseshit. So those are the first two, even though chronologically that that doesn't make any goddamn sense. And then finally, at the end of the book, is five entries out of thirty nine. Okay, the book has 39 entries, 39, you know, breakdowns of varying ships and vehicles and whatever else. Five out of 39 were for the original series of Battlestar Galactica, which, by the way, without the original Battlestar Galactica, there would be no Ron Moore crap. And I couldn't believe it. And, and, and honestly, like I already have the model or most of the models for the original BSG, you know, for the 78 Galactica. Uh, and that comes with the magazines. I already had them, but I was expecting, oh, well, by this time they'll have more in it and blah, blah, blah. You know, like they, they, they can't possibly just be, you know, sending us only five manuals, you know, like, or five, five entries from the original, you know, Galactica that, that wouldn't make any, any sense. And, and, and it's blazoned across the, you know, the, the cover that this covers all eras of Battlestar Galactica, including the classic. And so I was like, well, this is useless. I already have this information. And frankly, for them to only have five entries and this isn't listed as a volume one or anything like other shipyards book wars for Star Trek, uh, I'm going to assume this is it. This is all they're going to do. And so screw them. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not interested. But then it got worse. Then, you know, I was like, OK, because I was excited to, to tear through that and read into that. But then I was like, all right, well, let's see what they say at the beginning. What do they talk about? You know, why did did they have some kind of editorial decision as to why they would only do five ships from, you know, from the original Galactica when there are so many that you could break down? And even if you didn't have the models out, have the magazines done ahead of time and do the breakdown. Why not? 
I'm going to guess they're not going to come out with any more classic Galactica ships. And I don't know why. Again, they sell well. But I read all I, yeah, I did, I did end up reading the whole introduction. The reasonings they gave for whatever were, were, were stupid. But the part that just rubbed this man's rhubarb was in the, you know, and, and most people don't even bother to read these things, but I, I read every, every jot and tittle in every book. In the beginning where, you know, they say we would like, you know, the acknowledgements page, right? The first words uttered by the author of this book in the acknowledgements page is this book would not be possible without Ronald D. Moore. And, you know, just went on praising Ronald D. Moore, right? The creator of New BSG. I don't even know. And when, 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 I mean, that was the first person thanked. Now did Ron, Ron Moore come up with Galactica? No. Glenn Larson did. And so I'm reading through, I'm like, are they going to thank Glenn Larson? Where's Glenn Larson? They got to thank Glenn Larson. I mean, this guy, he's the guy that came up with this whole thing. Adam's Ark, the whole business. Uh, you know, I mean, now they thanked, and of course they did. Uh, they thanked Ralph McQuarrie, of course who, you know, did the, did the designs and a lot of the artwork for the original Battlestar Galactica. And of course, who's best known for his work with Star Wars, among other things. They thanked him. Not one fucking mention of Glenn Larson. Now, say what you want about Glenn Larson being a Mormon. I mean, you know, I won't hold that against him. Say what you want about the guy. This guy knew how to make a fucking hit show. Yes, he did. Because uh, he would go on to make Buck Rogers, um, which was a tremendous hit at first until the studios fucked it up. Uh, but that was a very popular show. Uh, he would make The Fall Guy, Knight Rider. I mean, the list goes on and on of tremendous properties that would go multi-seasons most of the time that Glenn Larson was behind. No mention of the of the brain behind the original or behind Battlestar Galactica. I don't have to say original. He's the guy that came up with the fucking idea and you can't thank him at the beginning of the book. And you thank Ron Moore, that fucking piss ant. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I, I mean, this is like Disney level insulting, meaning how Disney regularly would used to make, you know, animated films without giving any credit to the original authors that they'd swipe their shit out of the public domain from. Never giving them credit. Do they have two notes in the public domain? I understand. But should you? Yeah, I think that's a pretty nice thing to do. You know, or maybe inspire kids to read. Oh, no, no, no. They, they're like Apple. No, no. You only read if we put out a book about Robin Hood. Oh, I see. Don't let them read the originals. So it just, it felt, the original Galactica felt like an absolute afterthought. And I, I just thought that that was, that was so insulting. And this, the problem here, we're, we're, I mean, beyond how, how I'm just pissed off about it. The problem here is A, the lack of respect for what came before. And I think that there are times where, you know, some things are groundbreaking and deserve respect. Okay. You don't have to. But, you know, if there is, if you've made money off of these people, meaning the, fan, the original fans who obviously 
brought your your classic Galactica models to the point of being sold out, I don't know, maybe you should throw them a bone. Just a thought. But then part of the promise, and I know there's circles where this is really happening, and I'm glad that it is. Part of the promise of the internet was that it was this global marketplace that could answer and resolve any niche. And to some degree, that niche was resolved with releasing, you know, a, a diecast model, the original Galactica, the original Viper, and so on. But if you took the words of this book that was compiled, that was so supposedly, and I mean, it even says it right in the introduction, lovingly compiled, then I guess the original Galactica gets no love because they didn't express a stitch of it in this book. And that's what bothers me is that it would appear everybody is trying to appease the lowest common denominator today. Even companies that should pretty clearly see their audience is automatically niche. So you might as well go pretty niche and appease the niche that being Eagle Moss, you know, with who, with who they're dealing with. Um, they've gotten some pretty big contracts. I mean, they do WWE, they do Marvel, they do all kinds of things. And maybe, you know, all this shit has just gone to their head. I don't know. But that's really disappointing when you can't get, you know, when, when, when basically you just get scraps from these people who claim to be, you know, guardians of franchise and science fiction's past. And, you know, we mentioned a memory hole earlier. I feel like a lot of things are starting to fall through memory holes. Now, there are groups, just like when we talked about Warzone 2100 and our Megatron Advanced, there are people who say, no, there's this brilliant work out there. We shall continue the work and we will do it out of nothing other than passion. We're not going to make money off of it. In fact, frankly, we couldn't. But we will do it anyway for love of the game or whatever. And when I see niche companies starting to just try to appeal to the masses and not sticking with their niche, and I know this has been going on for a while. I mean, I, I can I can remember, you know, classic conversations with Harlan Ellison in the 90s where, where this was talked about. Um, this is really, really disappointing. And you can't even say, well, vote with your dollar. I did, and I got shafted. And I'm just, Again, it's just a general sense of disappointment that I was sold on this idea that, you know, well, now it's, oh, it's 3D printing and, oh, you know, and, and, you, and books can be printed for nothing and blah, blah, blah. And while there are great things being done, uh, there are a lot of things that are, even if they get any kind of attention, they basically get squandered and squashed within that attention. And I'm not going to let that happen to the things that inspired me growing up, that inspired me to this day, and that I think people would really enjoy if they would give it half a chance. That's why I'll run Sequest ads. I'll run Blake 7 ads. I'll run Babylon 5 ads. I'll run all these things. I'll talk about the classic shit. I'll shit on the new stuff. I'll do all that so that hopefully somebody can remember and appreciate Hard work, great art, great writing that hasn't been done in a very long time, sadly. 
And I'll be here for that. Ultimately, yeah, sure. I wish that like the IPs would open up on this stuff. So, I mean, cause holy fuck, let me write some fucking Galactica, baby. I mean, some OG Battlestar Galactica. I will give you the time of your life. Hell, I don't even have to. Richard Hatch, dear friend, Richard Hatch, dearly departed, dear friend, wrote tremendous novels about Battlestar Galactica. No one gives it, you know, no one even cares to look at them. How insulting. So I was disappointed. Um, and, and, and it's just another nail in the coffin um, of this company, which I thought was a company that really, really gave a shit, you know, about like diehard fans and fans that are really into niche stuff, you know, um, screw them. Like that, the, 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 that was just to, to not breathe Glenn Larson's name, you know, to, or to not, to not get it out there in the first breath is what I mean to say. It's beyond the pale. And these people, just, they, I mean, again, they just, they don't care. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're engaging in the, the fictional version of, uh, of revisionist history, quite frankly. And, uh, and, and I'm pretty tired of that, but you know, the classics live here. So <laughs> they live on sovereign tech. And I know you folks actually love it when I talk about that sort of thing. I also got some emails just talking quick. I also got some emails. Interestingly, people telling me uh, they loved it when I was talking about philosophy last time that uh, Ellen was on and that they thought I should do that more. Now, I don't know that people want me to do that, but, uh, but I'm glad you do appreciate, you know, when I talk about uh, a lot of classic science fiction, a lot of classic, even, you know, cartoons, which is really classic science fiction for a lot of it. You know, you get into Ulysses 31 and some of these other things. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I love it all and I'm happy to talk about it. And that's, that's part of what I had the climax for was to help introduce people to these, you know, to this classic stuff, uh, that, that the mainstream industry, uh, entertainment industry, which supposedly cares, even the parts of it that claim that they care, they don't care. So that's all right. We do. Anyway, that's it for this episode. I guess I kind of ended it on a sour note. No, 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 go, go, go. The links are in the show notes. Go play Warzone 20, uh, 2100. Go play our, uh, you know, our Megatron Advanced. In fact, do it on an open BSD machine. You're, you are going to feel so fucking badass. You couldn't feel better after listening to an episode than when you do that. So go for it, baby. Uh, anyway, thank you so much uh, to everybody. In fact, I mentioned it before, gotten some very kind donations. Please feel free to keep those coming. They help out greatly keeping this show going. And we'll be back next week, and I will see all of you woo, on the other side. Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech. An Osiris One production. Now go out there and make some trouble. <laughs>